You'll be back. You'll be back. You'll see, man. Don't bet on it. Welcome to episode 135 of GBW Podcast. My name is Josh, and with me as always is Chris. Hello, everybody. How's it going, man? Oh, you know, Skype all the time. Technical we're issues? One- yeah. Love them. <laughs> we're once again quarantined, doing our part to prevent the spread of coronavirus, not eating out in restaurants, which I desperately miss. Yep. And- um, doing this this way for the foreseeable future. Yeah. Uh, good times. But good time. Things do seem to be getting a little better, which is great. At least here in BC, we've been very fortunate. So um, thoughts are with you in the rest of the world who are not so fortunate. But um, I think everyone's going to pull through this eventually. Um, but it's just taking its time. But... Thank goodness we have lots and lots of movies, and I'm certainly not regretting the uh, copious amounts of physical media I've purchased over the years. <laughs> it's it's uh, a never-ending supply. <laughs> well, yeah, like, even if they have limited my streaming uh, capabilities, I still have my Blu-rays and DVDs. <laughs> exactly. Many, many, many of them. <laughs> Too many, some might say. That's true. But those some people can go to hell. so um yeah so as we've been doing for the last few episodes we're gonna continue just kind of going over what we watched because that seems to be giving everyone more than enough material to listen to um so yeah i guess um i will get started okay Um, yeah so i decided to um continue on with the franchise that i started a while ago and um now i'm gonna try and wrap it up in the next few episodes and that's the death race franchise um so i talked about death race one probably six months to a year ago um so i've moved on to death race two um so this entry in the series was um from 2010 directed by roll rene um who's one of those sequel guys i know there's another one of those sequel i think jeff burr is kind of a sequel guy too right but this guy's more of a new sequel guy, like The Marine 2 and Hard Target 2 and The Condemned 2 and oh, Death Jesus. Race 2 and Death Race 3 as well, for, for that matter. And okay, Death so Race this, 4. <laughs> <laughs> so this time around, um, I don't. I think I am going to spoil this. It's not really... Well, it was kind of a surprise to me, but I think if you read anything online, you'll know this. So uh, I'm just going to go out and say it. So this is actually a prequel to the Jason Statham Death Race movie. And this movie is kind of the origins of Frankenstein. Um, So this one stars Luke Goss, um, playing a guy named Carl Lucas. Luke Goss, um, I thought he was, so he's, I thought he was actually a really good leading, leading guy in this. And I'm like, why don't I know about this guy at all? And I'm like, oh, well, he's actually been in a number of things I've seen. I just don't remember him at all. So I don't know if he needed to be, like, leading leading man for me to recognize him. But he was in, like, that Tekken movie that uh, you gave me that I kind of enjoyed. Um, he was in Blade really? 2. You I kind like of Tekken. enjoyed Tekken? Whoa. I like tournament movies, man. 
Oh like no. Yeah, yeah, I didn't mind it. Um, oh. But he, um, so the weird thing about this guy is I was digging around because I'm like, oh, this actually, this is another action star I think I'm going to keep an eye on in the direct video stuff because I do like that stuff. But it turns out that this guy was half of the 80s pop band Bross. Oh, yeah. yeah. Do you remember that band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was Blonde. shocked. I His was twin shocked. Brother. Yeah, I couldn't believe that this guy was in Bross. And, like, if you look up Bross on uh, YouTube, it's horrifying that this I guy. thought it was bros because they're twin brothers. Maybe it's bros. Sure, bros. Bros. Which is even a worse name. I always thought it was Bross because they were foreign, but I guess they're not. They're from England. Anyway, um, Bros, which is a lamer name than Bross, I think. Mind you, Bros might be okay, but Bross is kind of lame too. So anyway, lame no matter what way you cut it. Um, But yeah, he's um, gotten over his boy band past and has now become a kind of a direct-to-video action star and quite compelling in this movie. Um, So... The movie opens with, um, well, it's not death race that's going on at the beginning of this movie. It's death match. And that's, uh, if they have a, you know, in the prisons, they're basically broadcasting live fights to the death is what the, how this movie opens. And um, it's being led by um, sexy reporter September Jones, played weirdly by Lauren Cohen, who has Maggie on The Walking Dead. And I totally, in a part that I totally didn't see her in, where she's like all sexed up and seducing everyone and um, with an English accent or a American accent and a real piece of work. So she's kind of the leader of all this stuff. Um, she's reporting to Ving Rhames, playing Wayland, who's also, who's also in tons of direct video movies and never quite recovered from, uh, or never quite got back up to the opportunity that was given to him with Pulp Fiction. Um, and he, um, so there, this is, this all, this whole um, deathmatch things going on. Meanwhile, um, we're introduced to Luke Goss's character, Carl Lucas, who's working for Sean Bean, and he's about to pull off a bank robbery. So this big bank robbery heist scene happens, which was really well done. And then it's followed by a really cool car chase. And I was like, wow, this is actually really good. I'm really into this. So eventually Luke Goss gets captured, ends up in prison and, um, um, get, you know, meets up with the usual suspects uh, like Danny Trejo. Um, we also have a few people from the original Death Race movie, I guess, this is before the, the, the events from before that movie. So Robin Shaw was back playing 14K. Um, you'll remember him from Mortal Kombat. He played Liu Kang. And um, Liss is back, the kind of weird autistic guy, played, played by Frederick Kohler, who was uh, one of the kids in Mr. Mom um, in a really? prior life. Yeah, weird. Um, okay, and then we're, you know... What happens is Luke Goss gets to the prison. He starts fighting in the death matches. They realize he's a really good fighter. Then one day he's like hanging out with Danny Trejo and uh, the kid from Mr. Mom. And there's this like they're in the car shop and there's this car there. And, and uh, Luke Goss's character takes the first spin and they realize he's like this awesome driver. 
So then they decide they're going to get away from Death Match and get into Death Race. And they soup up all the cars, like we saw in the Jason in the Jason Statham movie, where there are all these cool cars and they're all like you know got guns and all that shit. And um, they're not quite as cool as the Corman cars from the uh, original Death Race 2000, but they're still pretty cool. And then they race around a track to the death, and they like run over different plates, and that can arm their arm their weapons, or they can run over shield things. And anyway, I thought the whole thing was really good. I mean, there's a lot of really cool races. There's uh, again, I think this similar to the first one. There's like the race goes over three days, and it's an elimination thing. And um, yeah, there was a lot of good action. Um, uh, they all have sexy navigators from the female prison, just like in the Statham one. Um, in this one, uh, uh, Carl Lucas's navigator is played by uh, Tanit Phoenix, and her name is Trina, and she's all sexy. There's a lot of new metal playing because this is from 2010, which was probably the biggest downfall of this movie. But um, yeah, it's pretty fun, man. I mean, I uh, I gotta say, I actually think I might have liked this better than the Statham one. And um, I like the way it all tied together. I uh, didn't realize it was a prequel, and um, it had quite an upsetting conclusion uh, in a good way. And, um, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. I think this is uh, definitely one to check out, especially if you dug the Statham one or you like car action movies and um, with a bit of violence thrown in. it's, It's a pretty cool little prison action car race movie. So... Um, I don't know. I, I I think we. I was lukewarm on the first death race when I saw it, and then I revisited it and liked it. And this yeah. is kind of the same thing. I actually kind of dug this. So um, it was pretty clearly shot, probably back to back with Death Race Three, because it's one of those ones that's like so confident in itself that it leaves you on a complete cliffhanger. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it's definitely left very, very wide open. Um, so I can now watch Death Race Inferno. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty, Ooh. pretty, pretty into the series for what it is. I mean, it's not awesome. It's not a, you know, it's, it's lower budget than the Statham one. And, you know, if you're into these kind of movies, you'll probably like it. If you're not into these kind of movies, you're going to think it's stupid. So, but I, I dug it. I was pleasantly surprised. And Luke Goss, yeah, blew me away. I'm super into like checking out more movies with this guy now especially where he's like the lead or like a co-lead yeah i i I actually liked the jason statum one when it came out because i was willing to uh disconnect it from the corman one so i was like that's kind of fun it's probably the best thing paul anderson has done yeah i think apart from maybe event horizon because i don't really like him as a director yeah me neither but I know I have part two kicking around on Blu-ray somewhere, so maybe I'll give it a, a chance. But how many? How many are there? Like five? There's well, the pack I got is a four pack. There was uh, there was two and three kind of came out pretty close, and then there was one I believe released last year or the year before. That's called the uh, Anarchy or something. Something like Beyond Anarchy, I think. Okay. <laughs> Whatever. Okay, I think the third one. I think the third one has Frankenstein in it. Yeah. Well. Well, this one star like shows how Frankenstein came to be. Oh, so okay. I'm sure I'm sure Frankenstein will be in the third one because in the Death Race with Statham, 
he's replacing the Frankenstein that died, right? So oh. we kind we kind of know where this is all going. I mean, I guess the biggest thing here is I just didn't realize it was a prequel, which I think is kind of cool. So if you're a fan of the franchise, I think it's definitely worth checking out, even if you're a fan of the original, because it. I, I kind of like that they went there and uh, tried to kind of fill in some backstory where, because again, in, in the in the Corman or the Paul Bartel one, you don't know where uh, Carrie's character came from. Like, he's just there, right? Which is fine. But I think it's kind of neat to get a bit more story on, on the character. So, yeah, dug it quite a bit. So that's Death Race 2. Well, if we're doing franchises, I might as well do mine. <laughs> sure. I watched... I watched Best of the Best 2 from 1993. Right. Two twos. Uh, bringing back two twos. Bringing back director Robert Radler and also bringing back our three main stars, uh, Eric Roberts, Philip Ree, and Chris Penn, with a bigger budget and a bigger setting. So this kind of opens with like this imposing foreign dude called Bracken played by Ralph Moeller. And he arrives in Vegas for these underground octagon fights, which is hosted by Wayne Newton, the singer doing, doing his best Richard Dawson in the running man playing the announcer. Cause he's like, welcome to the Coliseum. And you know, he, he has this line, he goes, there's only one rule. And then the, and then the crowd goes, there are no rules. And he goes, you love it. And he says that like six times during the movie. So, you know, he's totally doing the running man thing. Cause it's like yeah. that stunt casting like Dawson was, but um, he's in the Coliseum. Bracken steps in and he beats the shit out of everyone and runs the table and then it turns out he's the guy who's running this like underground Vegas tournament with all these like rich people betting on who's going to die, basically. So into this picture comes Chris Penn's cowboy character from the first movie, who, of course, needs some money, joins up for this Coliseum fights and, you know, gets killed. <laughs> it's not a spoiler. He gets killed. It sets yeah. the plot in motion. So Penn, Roberts and Ree, they won the Olympic against the koreans in the uh, in the olympic thing and now they run a karate school so once once uh penn's character dies and roberts we have a scene early on where eric roberts son walter fails his pat his black belt test because he can't break the bricks on the on the rocks and it's shame on his family it's like okay it's time for philip ree and eric roberts to get vengeance for their buddy dying so they head off to Vegas to join in the fighting tournament. You love fighting tournaments, Josh? I do. I do. I love fighting tournaments. So they're there, and they have to take on Bracken and a bunch of other fighters on their way to revenge. So this movie is so fucking over the top and so silly, but I'm perfectly fine with that. Like, the first movie was like a serious kind of sports movie, where it's like, we have our training, we have our training mo montages, we have James Earl Jones as the gruff coach, and Sally Kirkland as the team psych psychiatrist, but we have a bar brawl in there just for the hell of it and stuff. This one is just fucking so the first one's like an inspirational sports sports movie this is like their schwarzenegger movie basically this is like their <laughs> hey blood sport was popular let's do it right and this is also where they decided to like move the focus off of eric roberts and onto philip ree his character because mm, in this right. one and well philip ree he produced and basically co-wrote 
the first two anyway. And then he goes on to direct and star in three and four, basically. So okay. this is just the, the passing of the torch from Roberts to Ree. And that's why when it comes down to the finish, it's more Philip Ree's fight than Eric Roberts' fight. Like Eric Roberts is basically here to be like a cheerleader who every once in a while fights. So that was kind of a bummer, but at least he still had his sweet, sweet ponytail going on. So, so this is like a bunch of attempts of them, like apart from them being in this tournament, there's many attempts of them of like threats on their lives. So there's a scene where like the thugs storm Eric Roberts house and Eric Roberts and Philip Ree have to beat the shit out of the thugs who are trying to gun them down. I'm like, okay, I'm good with this too. Bring it on. Let's, let's go. Um, and then it's just like super, super hammy acting, like just over the top acting, especially by this Ralph Moeller guy. Cause he has a scar on his face. He gets a scar on his face from one of the fights and he gets so upset that he just keeps touching it through the whole movie and like staring <laughs> off in the distance like, oh, you're dying, Philip Ree and Eric Roberts. You're so dying. You gave me this scar. And then along the way, we get Sonny Landham showing up from Predator, among other things, as the drunken native guy who's played for laughs. Ha ha. So inappropriate in today's yeah. day and age. But there he is. Um and just, you know, the training montage shows up again and, you know, just and everything's so exaggerated and ridiculous that you're just like, this is entertaining shit right here. Um, so it's it's what it is. It's it's a fucking ridiculous martial arts movie from 1993 that's like so different from the original, but still managed to be almost as entertaining as the original. And, you know, Wohler's playing the bad guy like perfectly with a thick accent trying to like channel Arnold Schwarzenegger. Philip Reeves like, Hey, I'm taking over Eric. You got a problem with that? Eric Roberts like, Nope, I don't. Cause then I'll go on and be in 400 other movies. If they give me a sandwich, like he seems to be yep. doing. And then like, and then Wade Newton just doing his catchphrase through the whole movie. Um, so it's, it's entertaining. Like no denying this is still entertaining. It's still goofy. It's still a lot of fun. And also I forgot to mention that, Kane Hodder's in this again. <laughs> like oh, no. he's in the original. He's in the original. It's one of the guys who starts the bar fight. And in this one, yeah. he's just like a he's just like a doorman who gets in a fight with them. So it's like Kane Hodder's <laughs> just like, yeah, I'm taking time off from Jason right now. I can fight Eric Roberts. Let's do this thing. Let's do it. So yeah, another one. I I, I recommend this one too. So that's two for two for this series. So I guess we'll see what three and four bring. Where did you get this set again? It's a UK release because okay. it's never been put out on Blu-ray over here. It's just been given like shitty full frame DVDs. And this is like no special features, but it's all four movies. They're all in widescreen and in HD. And I think the set cost me like 20 bucks tops for four movies. So, awesome. Well, I'll keep that in mind for my another next advantage. Day, uh, purchase. <laughs> Another advantage of being region free is you get to see four best of the best movies in HD. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So that's best of the best two recommended, just like the first one. Awesome. Well, speaking of Eric Roberts wanting sandwiches, um, I will also talk about an Eric Roberts, <laughs> Eric Roberts joint. Um, but Whoa. this is not nearly as good as uh, what you're talking about. Um, so I delved back into the uh, Fangoria Freight Fest um, series. 
series. Um, you know, because I was looking for easy pickings for uh, titles that I can uh, throw up on eBay um, now that I'm back at that game. Um, and that is The Tomb from 2009. And um, Oh, I have this too. And I think the first time in the history of the podcast, I didn't write the director's name down. Because um, that's how much I care. Anyway, he was a first-time director <laughs> and only-time director, so it doesn't really matter. Um, this movie also... Um, came out in a time that was um, Wes Bentley from American Beauty. This was his um, kind of at the peak of his drug addiction homelessness. Um, and because uh, I know his, if you if you don't know, I mean, Wes Bentley went through a pretty severe drug habit post-American Beauty that kind of peaked around this time where he, you know, lost his wife, lost all his money, ended up homeless. Uh, which might explain why he ended up in, uh, I think, St. Louis <laughs> and slashed the Ukraine to make this movie. Um, so this is a, based on the Edgar Allan Poe tale, um, the, the, tombs, the Tomb of Lygia. And Bentley plays a professor named Jonathan, who's a philosophy professor. Um, and he... Um, He's a real lame-o, man. I, I don't like this guy. I never have. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything that I liked. So he was the first strike. Star 80. Not, not Eric Roberts. I'm talking about Wes Bentley. Oh, Wes Bentley. Sorry. Yeah. Eric Roberts didn't have the drug problem. Wes Bentley did. Um, okay, okay. So, um, but I don't like Wes Bentley. I didn't like him American Beauty with a stupid bag. And even in this movie, he starts talking about seeing the beauty and things and i'm like oh god here we go but he did, thankfully didn't start talking about plastic bags but um okay so he's this professor he's talking about philosophy there's this he's got this really sweet yet quite cute girlfriend slash fiance named rowena played by caitlin doubleday um quite popular in the show's empire in nashville nowadays um yeah she's she's great she's like a kind of a, like one of those perfect girlfriend types but of course you know the mysterious kind of gothy dark woman comes into his classroom named Lygia played by Sophia Skaya who was a um, Mrs. World 2006 something I also didn't know existed there's a Miss World and a Mrs. World did you know that I didn't but um that's what there's I learned too there is I know I guess if you're married you become Mrs. World but if you're not married you become Miss World Anyway, Miss World's the one that went back, like, decades, but Mrs. World was established in, I think, the 90s? Anyway, who knows why. Anyway, that's her claim to fame. Okay, so he's, you know, Wes Bentley's kind of got, so he's got this really, you know, cute, together, blonde fiancé. But, of course, he goes for the, you know, unstable, gothy, temptress Lygia. So, you know, she takes him out to this goth club where it's like there's fire, there's topless dancers, and there's shitty music playing. And then they drink absinthe. And I'm just like, oh, my God, did they like read like did someone read like the Poppy Bright books and like just take all the like top things <laughs> and like try and throw them into this movie together? Because it's it's almost embarrassing, like how like like how like misguided the kind of goth scene is in this movie. OK, so they're drinking absinthe all the time. Eventually, he dumps Rowena and goes for um, Lygia. 
Lygia is basically just out for his money because she's like sucking souls out of people. Like, and it actually reminded me a lot of Doctor Sleep, which I talked about last week. So I almost wonder, did Stephen King see this movie? Highly doubtful. Um, okay, so <laughs> Lygia talks. Stephen King's to a big Eric Roberts, West Bentley fan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he's a big fan of the Fangoria Fright Fest, though. Um, anyway, so Lygia talks Eric, um, not Eric Roberts, talks Wes Bentley into dumping his girlfriend. He's Wes Bentley's rich, by the way, and I so I don't know under really understand why he's a fucking college professor. But anyway, oh, he also is a writer. So anyway, she 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 has sex with him. She then gets him to dump his fiance. Then gets him to buy a castle. So that they can go live there because that's where she's going to get cured and she can live forever or something. I don't really know. because there were, legit. So many, there were so many flash cuts in this movie, I really didn't know what was going on. You know, those like those like flash bulb cut transition things that they liked in those days. Oh, fucking I hate them. Um, so off they go. And then um, she eventually becomes sick. Meanwhile, he's like, you know, under her spell or some shit. And that's, I guess, why he did it. And then he eventually goes back to Rowena. And, of course, she takes him back. So instantly I lose all respect for her. And then um, they get back together. Then she gets possessed by Lygia's spirit. And then there's a killer kid. And, oh, my God, it was like they were throwing as much into this as they possibly could. And, um it didn't really make a lot of sense and it was super like fucking boring and um it had like the usual suspects like carrie hiroyuki tagawa shows up and michael madsen shows up and of course eric robert shows up and um, but they all have very very small parts and um i was kind of like why didn't these guys just start in this that would have been much better um but you know it nothing makes sense like this guy west bentley he's a total prick he like dumps this woman. Michael Madsen's her dad, by the way, the uh, well, the dumpy's dad. When when they get back together, like he's totally cool with it. I'm like, if I was that chick's dad, I'd be like punching this guy's lights out. Um, it was just yeah, this this movie was super lame. So I'm really puzzled, you know. And I kind of like the ghost house movies that I was starting to go through as well. I just don't get how these like kind of big franchises that are like you know, tied with, like, you know, a giant horror icon, like either Fangoria or Sam Raimi, pick up these totally shitty movies and release them under their label. Like, if I was Fangoria, I'd be like, no thanks, I don't want this, unless they already financed it or something. But these labels, these these Ghost House Underground and these ones feel like pickups to me. Like, they feel like they picked up the movie after and threw their name on it. But I just don't get why you put something this shitty out because I don't really have much good to say about this at all. It was just like the typical, like I could tell like, everything you need to know is on the DVD cover and it's just lame. It's just a lame poet adaptation that's not even really a poet adaptation. And um, yeah, just kind of aggravating. And I guess maybe if you're a West Bentley fan, you'll get something out of this. But is there any? Like, are there any? <laughs> I mean, the guy, the guys had a pretty, <laughs> the guys worked steadily even through a hardcore drug addiction, um, and like basically probably being a nightmare to work with. So I don't know how the guy keeps getting jobs. Maybe he's super nice or something. But man, oh man, the guy rubs me, rubs me the wrong way. Now I haven't seen. Um, I think he was in Red Eye, wasn't he? Was that him? The no, that was uh, Cillian Murphy. Right. Okay. Well, he was in um, 
Wes Bentley was in something else. I think he was in some horror movie. Anyway. He was in Roland's Cadillac, which was a Stephen King adaptation, which is maybe where Stephen King was like, hey, I saw that movie The Tomb you're in. I'm ripping that off for my book. <laughs> well, he was also like, yeah, because that movie came around. That was also in the kind of bad times of the drug years. He was in that P2, which I've heard was OK. But I just yeah, that was pretty I good. I just don't I don't know. I just something about the guy just rubs me the wrong way. But man, this was a stinker for sure. So, um Hopefully, I've gotten through the worst of the Fangoria Fright Fest, even though, although there's one more called The Haunting, which I'm also like, oh, fuck me. But, um, you know, me being like the addict that I am, need to have these entire series and be able to watch them all. So there you go. The Tomb from 2009. Avoid. I, I'm always so hesitant when these labels, like these like genre places, decide to come out with like DVD releases like... Like when like bloody disgusting did it like in yeah. 2010 and now Dread Central's doing it. I'm always like always so hesitant about what kind of stuff they're putting out because I just feel like it's not going to be very good. Well, some of these look good. Like there's the Jim Isaac Pig Hunt that looks pretty good. There's one called Roadkill yeah. that looks pretty good. So I think some of these might be okay, but but this oh, one looks dude, Roadkill's horrible. Is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, but you bought this yeah. too, so I'm not the only idiot out there. <laughs> I bought it Dollarama. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> but that's um, my yeah. excuse. It was two dollars. <laughs> <laughs> it's not worth. It's not even worth a watch, dude. But uh, if you want to go for it, I'd love to hear your uh, thoughts. But uh, but yeah, it's um, yeah. This is this is a waste of time. Okay. Well, you know. <laughs> We're talking ridiculous action movies like Best of the Best 2, so I might as well keep going on my ridiculous action movie thing. And the next movie was where I'm like, if you've ever wondered what Van Damme would do if he decided to try and be Indiana Jones, this movie is for you. So if you've ever wondered if Van Damme was like, I'm going to co-write a movie and I really, really dig Indiana Jones, let's do that. That's the movie. I'm going to talk about right now. It's from 2001. It's called The Order. It's directed by Sheldon Ledich, who also did Lionheart and Double Impact with Van Damme prior to this. Yeah. It opens in 1099 AD with a Crusader raid. No <laughs> which way. Which is just dudes. Yeah, it's just like dudes in really poor, like low budget Crusader outfits, sword fighting to give the backstory of this creation of this new order who have this, like they're this new cult basically who have made this, like this like book or whatever. And so then that's going on. I'm looking at the credits popping up. I see the music scores by Pino Donagio and I'm like, what the fuck's he doing, doing Whoa, the score I for this? Pick some weird And then it brings us. <laughs> yeah. And then it brings us to modern day and it has Van Damme breaking into this, building to steal from the russian mob where he steals basically a faberge egg and it's him like doing the whole <laughs> shooting the line over and repelling in and like he reaches in to get the egg and it's like temple it's like raiders of the lost ark when he's when he's trying to grab the statuette and i'm like van damme co-wrote this and the entire time i'm like yep he likes indiana jones but then <laughs> but then 
unlike Indiana Jones who cracks jokes, this is an example of the jokes Van Damme cracks in this movie. There's a moment where he's reaching for the egg, and the guy who's on the headset with him hears this noise, and he goes, was that a gunshot? And Van Damme goes, no, I farted. That's the humor of this movie. Um, So it's it's really just Van Damme trying to make an adventure movie, (laughs) for the most part. And it's just him playing it goofy and cracking out, cranking out a bunch of one-liners as much as he can. And then after this Fabergé egg theft, he heads off to Israel to follow his father who's disappeared because his father is looking into this sacred order, basically. So he's in Israel. He hooks up with, who does he hook up with? A family friend, an archaeologist, Charlton Heston. No yes, way. Charlton, Charlton Heston. Which leads to a what? car chase through the narrow brick wall lined roads of Israel, which ends with a fruit stand being destroyed. Uh, of course, because <laughs> that's what happens in these movies. <laughs> and then Heston gets about five minutes of screen time before he's basically written out of the movie. <laughs> so, wow, I can't know, believe Chuck was in that. Screen legend Charlton Heston spends five minutes in a Van Damme movie. And the world weeps. <laughs> so, so, so then it's it's Van Dam going Indiana Jones as he tries to hunt down this order. There's even a scene where he puts on a dis- disguises himself as a like Orthodox Jew. Basically, he has like the hat and the curly strands coming out the side of his head oh and all God. that stuff. Like just and and then. Who shows up in this movie is the bad guy called Cyrus Josh, GBW favorite, Brian Thompson. <laughs> oh, right on. <laughs> so so he's here as the bad guy, and his first appearance is him blowing up a car that has the main leader of the cult in it because he wants to take over. <laughs> oh, he's awesome, so, man. So then, you know, it's it's Brian Thompson being an, a badass. It's this uh, actress called Sophia Milos being a cop and a parent bl- a love interest who's always is following in the footsteps of Van Damme and going, oh, you silly man. What are you doing? You're getting into trouble in Israel. Don't make me send you back to America, basically, right? And the script is just such a fucking mess. Like, nothing makes sense. It just – it's – that fight scene where he's dressed up as the as the orth, as the Orthodox Jew guy, where he's jumping across rooftops and fighting people while this Hava Nagila music is playing in the background. I'm just like, what the fuck? How did this get made? And then, you know, if you've ever really wanted to see Van Damme and Brian Thompson fight in an ancient cave with swords, the order has you covered. It really <laughs> does. There's a sword fight between Brian Thompson and Jean-Claude Van Damme in a catacomb. That's I, I, what this movie I'd is. I'd watch that. I'd watch that. <laughs> so, it's not good. But, but, it does have its moments. Van Damme is having fun. Maybe shouldn't write scripts as often. But this movie is definitely not as lazy as a Seagal movie would be. Like, this right. is when Van Damme was going direct to video and at least he's still trying like not like seagal who's like fucking bringing my stunt double to do my fight scenes i don't care anymore at least van damme is trying and i think if you pair this movie up with the movie he made in 1996 called the quest 
which he also directed, which is also an attempt at an adventure movie, you might have a pretty good three hours, I gotta say. But <laughs> it's not good, per se, but it's good, if you get what I'm saying. I hear you, Ed. I hear you. So that's The Order from 2001. Can't recommend it for anybody but Van Damme fans who want to see him trying to be Harrison Ford. <laughs> I'd be down with that, especially with Brian Thompson. That's well, you, you'll you'll get your chance. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. All right. I um, decided to continue my uh, Universal Monsters uh, project. Um. So the next one in the series is um, The Invisible Man from 1933, um, which I have never seen before, um, directed by James Whale, which I did not know. Um, of course, James Whale directed Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and was the subject of the movie Gods and Monsters. Um, so this time around, I mean, I was, again, familiar with the look of the um villain but i wasn't familiar that much with the story uh, based on an hd well story um so this stars claude rains as dr jack griffin who uh opens it begins the movie already being invisible but wrapped in the classic bandages that we know and love um if you don't know who claude rains is he was the police inspector in casablanca and he's been in tons of other things but that's probably his main main role um didn't Co- he also have the lead in Phantom of the Opera? One version of um, it? Maybe. Yes. Like the he, 40s one? I think the Universal one, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. This also co-stars um, as his um, his girlfriend, who um, they're kind of estranged, but she's played by Gloria Stewart, which I also had no idea about. And she was Rose and the old Rose in Titanic. Um, and I think she got an Oscar nomination when Titanic came out, but there was a lot of buzz around her, about her um, at that time. But she um, was quite the looker when she was young back in 1933, and I couldn't realize, I couldn't believe just how blog, large her career was as well. But um, she was decent as the kind of love interest. But the, this is all about um, Jack Griffin and the Invisible Man story. So the movie opens with him showing up in this um, kind of like. Um, in in the middle of uh, the snow and he's there and he's trying to like basically figure out a way to he's invisible like he's made himself invisible through science and he's trying to figure out an antidote to make himself normal again so he's holed up in this inn he's trying to do this but he's really bitter he's really angry he's an asshole to everyone um, anytime someone like comes in his room he like freaks out on them and he's also like a fucking sociopath so like he um gets off like by you know killing people and you know mischief like he like you know steals people's bikes because they can't see him and they'll throw shit around and one point he actually you know derails a train like this guy's a real asshole badass murderer psycho um and he's great at it like he's got this like maniacal laughter that i thought was great um and um yeah I mean, how's I it go see, what's that i'm not gonna do it how's I mean, the like, laugh he's, go he's just like <laughs> dancing around like <laughs> i can't even make my voice go that loud and i can't be that loud here um uh, but uh. i know i do know that mark hamill based his um portrayal of the joker on uh claude Rains' portrayal of the invisible man if that oh. if that, that that might put it into perspective okay 
Um, you know, the obviously the effects at this time were very innovative. I mean, uh, Jack Pierce is back doing the makeup, which there's not a lot of. It's more the bandages. Um, but the real cool thing about the effects is this was like a precursor to like green screen or blue screen. And they had Reigns um, dress up in black velvet and go in front of a black velvet background so he could appear as though he was invisible. Um, you know, it's short and sweet, like all the early Universal Monster movies, um, where, you know, you just kind of get introduced to the characters and then you're pretty much at the climax before you know it. And then it's over, uh, which is good. Um Unlike The Mummy, I felt like this clipped along really fast, because um, even though The Mummy was short, I felt it dragged, but this one um, really does move quite quickly. Probably the quickest so far of the first four um, of Dracula, Frankenstein, and uh, The Mummy in this one. This is probably the one that really moves along. And um, unlike the other ones as well, where you've, you know, you kind of sympathize with the characters a little bit more, this one, no. This guy's just a crazy uh, like a fucking lunatic so um but yeah i dug it i dug it quite a bit and um i'm i'm looking forward to seeing some of the others i don't think i've my only real exposure in cinema to the invisible man is the hollow man of course i haven't seen the the new one with um with um madman girl and um i um yeah it's just hollow man is my only kind of invisibility exposure so uh but yeah this is i'm glad i finally seen this one this is like the one of the classics that i never got around to um but yeah from here on it's a lot of this is going to be like blind territory because i haven't seen any of the sequels so um i'm curious how these pan out i know some of them sound like they're going to be pretty good some of them sound like they're not but i'm i'm going to limit it to one per episode just so i don't bore people that aren't into classic films but uh yeah this was uh this was definitely uh another one of the iconic ones that you definitely want on your list the invisible are man from 1933 are you doing it in chronological order then yeah i'm doing it in chronological i'm just skipping i'm skipping dracula frankenstein and bride of frankenstein because i've already talked about but so are, now, you, are you? Yeah, I'm going year year order, like when they okay. came out. Are you planning on including the Abbott Costello ones? Yeah, I'm doing the whole box set, the 30 film box oh. set. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, that'd be interesting because there's a lot of those I haven't seen either. So yeah, maybe there'll be some hidden gems. Let's hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope so. Well, here's no hidden gem next for me, buddy. Um, I know that we were working our way through the Cheech and Chong movies, and I know oh, we've God. still got Korskin, we still got Korskin brothers to go. We did. But I decided, but I decided I would watch the thing they made after Korskin brothers, the thing that basically they split up after making, and that was the mockumentary video album for their 1985 LP, Get Out of My Room. <laughs> so. Oh. Yeah, so this is, is like a, a fifty. It's a fifty-two minute mockumentary, basically, because what happened was Cheech and Chong put out an album in 1985 called "Get Out of My Room," and it was mostly just songs. So they're mm-hmm. like, music videos are popular right now. Let's do a like promo thing, like a tie-in that we can release on VHS and make money from, and it'll be like an hour long, and it'll be like kind of spinal tappy, 
but we'll also make music videos for some of the songs on the album. So that's what the basic idea of this is. Um, instead of Tommy Chong directing this one, Cheech directed this one. So this is like the first time Cheech got the chance to direct something. And two years later, he made Born in East L.A., which, you know, that was his real film directing debut. So, so this is basically opens with black credits and Cheech doing about four voices, different voices. Like, oh, you hear about the new Cheech and Chog album? Oh, what do you think about the new Cheech and Chog album? Oh, it's really great. Oh, you know, all that kind of bullshit. He's doing right. that at the beginning of this. Oh, no. Then, <laughs> then it basically becomes a behind the scenes of them making the record and making their music videos where it's just the two guys sitting on a couch talking about stuff and making a few like drug jokes here and there while it's mixed in with like you know interviews and recording studio buffoonery and it's just like this looks like it was shot on vhs basically and you're like, it's so cheap looking. And you're like, yeah, times have gotten tough for Cheech and Chong right now in 1985. And you're like, I can see why this is the last thing these guys did for a while after this get out of my room. They right. basically like went their separate ways and didn't get back together until like, I think, 2012 or something like that. Like they waited like almost 20 years to do something together again. And if this is any indication, it's easy to see why that happened. So <laughs> this is basically like the first video is for the title track, Get Out of My Room. And it's Cheech basically playing a character called Ian Rotten, who is really just the Alice Bowie character from Up in Smoke, that British, like, you know, with the long blonde wig and, the you know, yeah. the one who did Earache My Eye. But it's just basically that character with a different name. So and then you've got John Paragon playing the interviewer who runs around interviewing the Cheech and Chong and the people who are making the videos. Now, who's John Paragon, you may ask? John Paragon is the guy who co-wrote Elvira, Mistress of the Dark with Cassandra Peterson, but also played the genie Jombie on Pee Wee's Playhouse in the 80s. <laughs> He's like this comedian guy. He's actually the best thing in this, if, if I'm going to be honest. Um, so the first video is basically Get Out of My Room, which is just, you know, them recording a low-budget video in a gymnasium at a rec center while there's people playing basketball in the background. And, you know, and at least there's some girls in, like, aerobics leotards showing up to do, like, you know, 20-minute workout stuff in the background. At least that that's going for it. And I'm just like... And then there's just in the video, it has Chong like acting like he's totally uninterested in what's going on. And I'm thinking when I'm watching this, this might be legit. Maybe Chong really didn't give a fuck when they were making this because <laughs> there's no effort involved in this at all. Right. Then it goes on to the song. I'm not home right now, which is just a goof on the Bahamas trip mixed connections as it's like basically it's just like. Cheech calling Chong, being like, hey, man, I'm in the Bahamas. You should come. Look at all these girls. And he's like, oh, man, I'm totally missing out and all this stuff or whatever. Right. Stupid, stupid stuff. Oh, a few yeah. mild chuckles, a little bit. But like, I'm just like, what? 
what is the point of this? Like, why is this here? Um, then comes a song called Love is Strange, which is basically two eyeball aliens coming down to Earth to observe people. And again, it's Cheech and Chong having phone calls between each other or like calling a girl up. And I'm like, how many fucking phone calls did they have in their songs on this album? Basically, that happens. I'm like, but at that time, I'm like, OK, well, at least this video has Mary Warrenoff and Beverly D'Angelo showing up in bit parts in this video. I'm like, at least we've got that going for us. Mary Warrenoff, of course, plays uh, plays was in Eating Raul and was in Death Race 2000. Yeah. Beverly D'Angelo was the mom in the vacation movies. So at least it's got that going for it. Then comes the big moment of this one, which is obviously Born in East L.A., which is Cheech's Springsteen spoof and was spun off into his own movie. Yeah, It's probably the best of the four videos here. The song's not terrible, admittedly, and it's got Elvira showing up in the video in both Elvira form and Cassandra Peterson form. Oh, okay. So it's Elvira. So it's Elvira in her skimpy black dress with all her, you know, cleavage popping out at times. But then when Cheech is going down the the road with everyone around him singing Born in East L.A., you can clearly see Cassandra Peterson dancing beside him without the Elvira getup with her red hair and everything. So I'm like, oh, it's oh, Cassandra awesome. Peterson being herself. And it's also got Jen Michael Vincent showing up as the border cop who wants to send Cheech back to Mexico, basically. So I'm like, okay, Jim, Michael Vincent, probably in the throes of alcoholism, showing up in a Cheech and Chong music yeah. video. Okay. So this is pretty crappy, dude. Like, pretty crappy, but I gotta admit, it's better than some of their other... It's better than Still Smoking. It's better than Nice Dreams. Really? There was something about this... Yeah, it was just something about this shitty VHS quality to this that I'm like... I'm kind of okay with this. <laughs> and the fact that you have all these cameos in it, I'm okay with this. Is it as good as Things Are Tough All Over? No, it's not. But at least it's better than Nice Dreams and Still Smoking. I give it a passable, indifferent shrug <laughs> to get out of my room. Oh, my God. Well, um, I don't even remember Things Are Tough All Over. Like, I don't even remember what that movie was about. Uh, I remember Things Are Tough All Over was the... Yeah. But not that one. Things Are Tough All Over was the one where they had to transport the truck, the car, with all the money in the seats, and then they played the Arab guys at one point. Yeah, yeah. Where Chong was actually pretty good as the the Arab thug with the swish blade. Yeah, yeah, okay. And the opening scene is them going through the drive-thru in a convertible. Don't remember that. I, is that the one Linnea was yeah, in? Yeah, they go this? through. No, she was in Nice I Dreams. I think she was in. Yeah, next movie she was in, too. Yeah. But no, this huh. the beginning scene of this is them at the drive-thru taking the pimp's car through the through the car wash and getting all the soap in the car and the pimp getting oh, mad at right. them. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is, this is, this is not as good as that. But it's I spent 50 minutes with this and I I didn't want to I didn't want to throw the DVD against the wall. Let's put it that way. Yeah, they're an anomaly. I just don't understand. (laughs) No, outside of Up in Smoke, 
there's no reason for them to exist. Like, really. <laughs> so, true. so true. So, yeah, so get out of my room from 1985. Great. Proceed with, proceed with caution. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a skip for me. I'm glad I didn't have to watch that. <laughs> I watch it so but, you don't have to. I'd watch it for the uh, Elvira stuff and the Jan Michael Vincent stuff. That's about it. All right. So um, one of our listeners, Adam, posted a um, posted a trailer on our Facebook wall that I thought I'd check out. It's for a movie called Get In from 2019, a.k.a. Fury. Um, it's on Netflix. A uh, French movie directed by Olivier Abot. Um, okay. So, this has a really cool setup. Quote unquote, based on a true story. Um, so, with this couple, they, um, they're on vacation. Their house is being house sat by their child's, um, na- former nanny and her husband. But when the couple get back to their house, they find out that the name on the on the mailbox has been changed and the nanny and her husband aren't letting them into their house so the husband like jumps the fence and he's like trying to figure out what's going on um meanwhile the people in the house the nanny call the cops basically say that someone's trespassing and the husband ends up getting arrested so we're then going to the police station and we realize that because of something they did with signing the lease and something about the fact that the tenants have been paying the utility bills, that somehow, for whatever reason, the house is the people that own the house are not be able to get back into their home. That some legal glitch has prevented them from being able to get back into their home. Um, and it's yeah, I mean it's a pretty interesting setup. I mean, pretty infuriating. Like, cause like basically there are couple or kind of protagonist couple end up having to go to a trailer park and park their motor home and live there and continue to pay the mortgage in their house that they're not able to access because of this illegal glitch. So the first while in the movie is focused on this, focused on the husband, who's again, a philosophy professor um and he's trying to like come to terms with like how to like get his home back and he's also kind of like a wimp um so he doesn't have any basically doesn't have any balls so he can't like go and just take back his house but me but also the cops are saying basically if you try and take back your home you can be arrested for you know thrown in jail basically so i thought it was really interesting i thought it was i thought the 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 actress playing the couple um paul diallo um, or sorry, um, Adriana Nian playing Paul and Stefan uh, Kalard playing Chloe, I thought were great. Um, now, here's where things start to change. So they're at the trailer park. There's this ex-lover of um, the wife uh, who runs the trailer park. And he's like basically trying to get Paul to come out of his shell, but in a kind of extreme way. Like he's taking him out to this, this club. He takes him out to this club where there's like women all over him and like they're they're like diving into water and drinking beer under underwater and stuff like kind of an extreme crazy club and it's just establishing that this mickey guy that runs the trailer park is this crazy guy who's gonna like make paul crazy and get him to like find his balls and go take back his home 
Uh, but there's also stuff going on because he was an ex-lover of the wife, so there's that going on as well. And still, I'm kind of into this. I'm like, okay, well, this is it's pretty interesting. Again, pretty well acted by the leads. Uh, pretty well acted, um, especially by uh, Adarna Nicole Miani, sorry, um, you know, showing as he's trying to like come to terms with how to like deal with all this. And I was actually really, really into this. Then, for no reason, the movie just goes into complete French extremism territory um, and becomes a siege movie where pretty much Paul and Chloe are they're, they're at a point where they've kind of driven up in front of their house and are kind of like sitting they're basically on the property sitting there in their trailer park trying to like you know intimidate the people into leaving but when that happens when that's happening um, Mickey and his cronies then home invasion the house like where the where the um, the kind of the tenants that have taken over are they home invasion them and I guess this is I think it's supposed to be to spur Paul on to like go take over his house but it's it's, it's in a totally extreme way like it's it's they they take over the house they're in there with guns they like basically beat the shit out of the 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 husband that's there they take the wife um it's kind of implied that they rape her they cover her up in plastic and then they and then paul and chloe then decide to go in to help and then they end up getting beaten and uh, her clothes get torn off and again implied rape um and then it just gets really really violent and i was just like what the fuck where is this coming from and like you know normally in a movie like you know like frontiers or uh hope tension like those kind of movies or even inside or um even martyrs like all those movies i kind of know what i'm getting into right like i know that this is a genre and this is kind of what was going on in france at the time and but this is like 15 20 years after those came out and um it just it just felt forced like i'm like you had this really good drama going on and then i don't know why but they they just made this decision to like go in try and make it like those other movies where it really felt like it had no place so i was really conflicted on this one because i thought it was actually really i was really with this until that kind of last half hour happened and then i was just completely taken out of it and like the nudity was like totally unnecessary which is weird for me to say but like it wasn't it wasn't like uh like you know watching like the bikini car wash where you kind of know what you're getting and it's titillating and silly right like that's fine but when you're having like nudity for like especially like violent like you know untitillating nudity for no reason whatsoever like there was no reason for it i'm just i was really starting to question like why like what the filmmaker was even trying to say like i it, the whole story was just lost and uh, the villain like this mickey character just became like this over the top like almost like a jason like character where he was like kind of unkillable in a way and yeah it's just very very strange flick um and a very very heavy straw dogs vibe uh, but again you're going into straw dogs territory where you've got your meek guy who's got to like defend his home I'm going to compare you to fucking straw dogs. <laughs> like yep. there's no way around it. Like if you're, if that's what you're going to do. That's what I'm going to compare you to. And I, I don't like doing that. I like taking things for what they are, but this was so far into that, like with 
kind of what it like the way it was all set up and everything there was no way for me to not and unfortunately uh, because that's one of my favorite flicks you're not gonna you're not gonna get there right so anyway really disappointed I, I was really disappointed in this the way it was kind of marketed on netflix and then the trailer and in the article that was posted on our wall i thought this was going to be kind of a french extremism movie right so when that's not what happened in the first hour i was actually like oh okay well i was probably wouldn't have even watched this but this is actually really a really good drama i'm totally down with this and then yeah just went in this way that just shouldn't have gone so I don't know, man. If you're fans of like really violent, you know, home invasion type movies, you'll probably love the last half hour of this. That's not really my thing so much. Like, I don't really like that kind of. I mean, I'll watch it, but it's not something I would usually gravitate towards. Um, yeah, it was just just kind of. I felt like, yeah, I felt kind of duped in, in multiple ways. First, I felt duped because I'm like, this isn't that. And then I'm like, oh, this isn't that, but I'm actually into this. And then it became that, and I'm like, fuck off, right? So yeah, it just felt, um, I felt like the director didn't know what he wanted to do. Like it was, it felt really shoehorned in. Like he, like they were just like, oh, you got to make this, this violent action movie for like no reason. But it didn't, it wasn't smooth. It didn't make sense. Like, um, well made. I will give it that. Well made, well acted, but um, not not my thing, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I watched the trailer for this when he posted on our wall, too. And I was like, it looks okay, but I just, it felt like what you're saying. Even the trailer, I was like, this looks like it has that problem that you and I have talked about for a while, about tonal shifts not working. Was that in the trailer? Like, I didn't watch the trailer. Before, yeah, like, so. the trailer does look like it has tonal shifts, because it shows basically him being kicked out of the house... And then having to go to resort to these other guys telling them, this is how you take your house back. And then right. showing like yep. them driving through a fence with this big truck and things like catching on fire and all this stuff. And I'm like, OK, so this kind of looks like that thing we were talking about where your tonal shift kind of doesn't work to me for me. No. Like that's the that's the impression I got when I watched the trailer even. Yeah. Yeah. It's to- it's totally that like. One or the other, I would have been cool with, but not both. <laughs> not together. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Like, you can't go from one extreme to the other. Like, I'm not saying we're, I'm not saying tonal shifts are completely not necessary, but if it's a subtle tonal shift. Yeah. And this didn't seem like it had a subtle tonal shift, even from the trailer. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was disappointed. I, um, um, especially with those two leads, I mean, I thought they both were fantastic, and uh, and um, there was just a lot going on with them, like you know, because not only was he like meek, and they were in this situation, but there was also trouble with the marriage, and I was really into it. I was really into their story and both of them, and kind of like how they were dealing with it, and what was going to happen to their relationship, and all that, and and then that all just, yeah. Anyway, too bad. Thanks for the recommendation, but yeah, this one wasn't for me unfortunately so that's called get in okay terrible fucking title too you should have left it at fury at least get in yeah (laughs) it's like they're trying to cash in on get out they totally are yeah yeah Yeah. so yeah okay well um (laughs) what's next uh so 
we made an we did an episode quite a while back called the outsiders legacy where we spoke of the actors who were in the outsiders based on the se hinton novel and how you know their careers went and stuff like that like because that was one of those movies in the 80s that had so many big name actors in it they were like whoa look at this right so there was this run of se hinton novels being adapted from like you know starting with i think uh i think actually tex might have been the first one in 82 oh yeah 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 so it went tex then it went the outsiders rumblefish and then my subject matter here which is that was then this is now (laughs) right from 1985 and this was the last of those se hinton adaptations and is considered the least of those se hinton adaptations and I kind of have to agree with that, uh, you know, that that statement. Um, so this stars Emilio Estevez and Craig Sheffer, a guy oh, you love God. from what what Turbulence movie was he in? Turbulence Three, yes. Turbulence Three, which is a great, he was also, a pretty fun movie. But he was also in Nightbreed and things like that. Yeah. Um, this is interesting. And while she was while you were out, while she was out. Oh yeah, he was like the dickhead, uh, yeah, the dickhead yeah. abusive husband in that. Um, so what's interesting about this is not only does Estevez co-star, he also wrote the screenplay for this, and this came out the same year as Breakfast Club. So I found that kind of interesting, but also the fact that the year after this, in 1986, he wrote and directed the movie Wisdom, co-starring Demi right. Moore. Where yeah. they were robbing banks, kind of like his Bonnie and Clyde. So I was yeah. like, okay, I'm kind of interested to see what Emilio Estevez can do with like the screenplay and starring because I kind of like Emilio Estevez. Like he's he's okay. He's I never really had any issues with him. Like I always thought he was fine in everything he was in, and then he kind of shifted towards directing, which you know that works too. So I'm like, okay, what are we gonna get out of that? Was then this is now. Opening scene has Estevez's character hot wiring a car and going on a joyride with his buddy Craig Sheffer. So they're like these guys who are like tight buddies. Um, Sheffer's basically, from what I can tell, he's basically an orphan because his parents died in a car crash and he's kind of been living with Estevez and his mom. And they're like those tight buddies. They're like the, you know, the the uh, inseparable best friends kind of. Yeah. So. Op- opens with him hot wiring a car they going joyriding then i realize that the credits are playing and i'm like holy shit look at this cast i'm like you got larry b scott in this who played lamar in revenge <laughs> of the nerds you've got jill sholin from the stepfather and popcorn and the phantom of the opera with robert england yeah. so i'm like okay and we've got morgan freeman freckles himself is in this movie. I'm like, oh, this is Morgan Freeman before Miss Daisy and Lean on Me. I'm like, okay, early Morgan Freeman. So they're in the cast. I'm like, okay, so far, so good. I'm like, so so Sheffer plays Byron. Estevez plays Mark. You know, opens with Byron's mom is actually she's not she's not dead. She's in the hospital. I guess the husband died in a car crash. So she's in the hospital. So he's basically staying with Estevez and his mom. So it opens with them just cruising, hanging out. Larry B. Scott's character's there, and he gets to, like, 
do a rap song just like he did in Revenge of the Nerds. You know, they're cruising the strip and, you know, these white bread boys, Black Buddy is doing a rap while they're driving the strip because that's <laughs> what black people did in the 80s. They rapped at random. It just happened. You know, I had black friends in the 80s and I know when I hung out with them, they just bust into a rap like out of nowhere. I was like, whoa. And I just started breakdancing and popping and locking on a on a sheet of cardboard. And Boogaloo <laughs> Shrimp came along and we just partied. And that's just what happened in the mid-80s, okay? So <laughs> it has that happening. And then we've got just your mid-80s teen angst coming-of-age stuff as Byron is trying to grow up. You know, he meets a girl called Kathy, called Kim Delaney, and he starts dating her. And he wants to, like, go to college and, you know, not be a delinquent. But at the same time, Mark just doesn't want to grow up. He just wants to be that delinquent. He gets super jealous of Kathy. So he starts acting out, you know. And while they're acting out, they end up hanging out with Charlie, who's played by Morgan Freeman, who's the older sort of mentor guy who runs this bar and pool hall who lets them come in and hustle pool and stuff so you know so far whatever sounds you know, like an sc hinton thing for sure pretty much yeah. so so you know you know there there there's this tension between the two guys because the girls in the mix and then they decide to hustle pool on the wrong guys which ends with you know charlie you know, something happens to Charlie. I mean, this isn't a spoiler. You know, he gets shot and killed. Okay, basically, it's not a spoiler. It, you know, it's 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 a plot. It's a S.E. Hinton plot progressor because this is the kind of shit she did in her books. Okay, like if you read S.E. Hinton, you know this is happening. I mean, come on. <laughs> Every single one of her books, someone dies, which makes the main characters have to grow up. You know this is going to happen. It happened in fucking Outsiders. It ha- probably happened in Rumblefish. It just happens. So from there, it's kind of like, you know, Estevez spending the movie acting childish and chuckling and smirking. And then, you know, a, a scene where he, like, gets... Um, Byron's ex-girlfriend drunk and chops her hair off and it's just it seems so silly and forced because through the beginning of this movie there's all this philosophy going on like they're having that deep talk deep talks about life and where they want to be in life and then fucking Estevez is chopping some girl's hair off after getting her drunk and I'm like okay whatever Um, and then it's just like leads to like you know them getting in fights and one refusing to grow up and the other wanting to grow up. Still rinse, repeat, S.E. Hinton. This shit happens. Um, it's just like, it's just not, like with the Outsiders and Rumblefish and stuff, it kind of worked. Because you had a good director behind those movies, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you got a good director making those movies. Who's making that was then this is now Christopher Kane, who I only know from directing Young Guns three years after this. Oh, I love like, Young Guns. Yeah, but you know what I mean? Like with those movies, you have a good director who understands it. S.E. Hinton wrote these books when she was like 14 years old and 15 years old. And, you know, there's no real depth to these books if you actually look at them. So you yeah. have to do something with them to make them more palpable for an audience. Whereas this guy's like Estevez and this Christopher King guy are like, 
fuck it. We're just going to go buy her book and it's going to be the same shit that's in all of her fucking books, but let's do it. You know, we'll have this soundtrack that has like some hit songs of the time. We'll have the teen angst. We'll have Estevez, you know, being a dickhead and Sheffer being like, why you got to be such a prick? And then we'll have the big, you know, finale where, you know, things don't go quite the way they're supposed to. That kind of stuff. You know, it's just typical fucking Essie Hinton shit. Um, so, you know, I liked the beginning of this movie. I really did. I liked it when they were joyriding. I liked it when they were at the bowling alley causing grief. I liked Kim Kim Delaney's character at the beginning of this. I thought she was like the cute girl who was getting into trouble. And I was like, okay, this is okay. But then fucking Estevez's character just becomes such a fucking prick through the second half of this movie and does such stupid fucking shit that you're like, I I get what you're trying to do, but the guy's acting like he's fucking 14 years old, okay? Like chopping a girl's hair off, getting drunk and getting into fistfights. Ooh, big deal. I've seen this in other movies by now. I don't care by this point. And then you've got Kane trying to be trying to attempt to be arty because there's this like arty shot of Estevez's character telling Byron about his parents fighting and their death and how he's so hard. So he's so like scarred from this event while it's raining and the rain's reflecting off of his face to make it all dramatic. And I'm like, ooh, great shot in this movie. That's basically a teen drama, not buying it. Right. It's just like and then any adult in this movie and to a lesser degree, Kathy is really not important to the story. So, like, I'm just like, you know, it's just like there's a scene where Kathy's brother gets hooked on drugs and he's like this, like, 12 year old who gets bullied, who they've been like befriended. He gets hooked on drugs and they literally have to fucking drive out to this warehouse where all the fucking burnouts have been hanging out to save him. And it has no reason to be in this fucking movie. Like, I'm like, why is this here? Right? And then the finale just has a bunch of crying going on. And then Sheffer's character doing something that kind of harkens back to earlier in the movie that rang completely false to me. So, basically, as a screenwriter, Estevez (laughs) doesn't know how to be a screenwriter. Because his characters, literally, through this whole movie... After almost every third line of dialogue, this is how the dialogue goes. Come on, man. I don't know, man. What are you doing, man? Come on. You don't love me, man. (laughs) Kathy's a bitch, man. That's basically it. He has man at the end of so many sentences in this movie. I'm like, Jesus Christ, Emilio. Just why? Don't don't do it. So basically what I'm trying to say is if you've seen any S.E. Hint movies, you've seen that was then, this is now. If you want to see a good S.E. Hint movie, perhaps watch The Outsiders because it's got a good director behind it. Yeah. This is a curiosity just because it's an 80s, mid-80s, coming-of-age kind of movie. But fuck, dude. I, I was just like so indifferent towards this by the end of the movie. I was just like, I don't care. Well, first of all, you're following Coppola. I think twice, didn't he do? Yeah, he did Rumblefish and Outsiders. Yeah, so good luck with that. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you're right, man. Like I, I remember reading all these when I was when I was young as well, and watching all these movies, and being this was not memorable. 
I also haven't heard of anyone talk about this movie since. <laughs> like, yeah. How did? Where did this come from? Like, how did you stumble across this one? I was just like, oh, I can get the DVD of this for like five bucks. I might as well try this out. I because I I see the I saw this when I was like young, and I remember thinking it was okay. But I had absolutely no memory of it. So I, when I saw I could get it for super cheap, I was like, "Fuck it, let's do it. Let's let's try this out. How bad can it be?" And yeah, it's not great. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny. Like I've got like a pretty good knowledge as to you about like what's available, like what's come out on disc and what's coming on blue and all that. Yeah. I have no recollection of this coming out on DVD, like <laughs> ever. <right? laughs> like, it feels like one of those lost movies that I've just never thought about. I guess for a good reason. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty uh, forgettable. And like I said, if you've seen an Nessie hit movie, you know exactly where this movie's going from the get-go. Yeah. But this is definitely, understandably, the most forgotten of those four movies. So yeah, that was then. This is now. Wow. Deep cut. Deep 80s cut. <laughs> Deep 80s cut. Nice. I gotta tell you, I think Reckless, the other teen angsty type of movie that i talked about recently yeah. is much better than this oh i love reckless man <laughs> well, i know i know i i like reckless for certain reasons too yeah all right so we're gonna do a double shot now um from the old mill creek 200 movie oh, cult oh, classic oh. set <laughs> oh, what's this now and i gotta say man i'm kind of enjoying this even though a lot of the movies aren't very good, but um, okay. So next one in order <laughs> was, um, and again, the thing I like about this is I would never have, I would never watch these movies. Like I would never have selected even buying most of these, but they all have something. Okay. You would okay. have bought them, but when you saw them on Amazon for like $40 for 200 movies, you're like, fuck yes. <laughs> yeah, but the, I would never have like, even even then though, I bought that because I was like after certain titles, right? But I mean, going through this process is pretty interesting because like even that, like I have the set, but there's no way I would ever have picked some of these movies. Mm-hmm. I would never have sat down and went, hmm, what do I watch? Oh, maybe I'll watch this one, you know? Wouldn't have happened. So anyway, the next one. I think, I think. I think legitimately with these sets like this, you have to go in order. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've never done that. Like a lot of these sets, I've never, I'll watch like the two that I'm interested in and then the piece out. Right. But anyway, this is kind of fun. So let's see how long I can keep doing this. Um, I'm also trying to get through some of these. Um, there's, it definitely has ebbs and flows. <laughs> okay. So this next, the next one was a movie called Nightmare in Wax from 1969, directed by Ooh, Cameron Hutt, Mitchell. Yeah, directed by Bud Townsend, who is probably best known for um, making the uh, the X-rated version of Alice in Wonderland, starring Christine DeBell, uh, which isn't half bad actually for a weird Alice in Wonderland thing. But anyway, we're not talking about that right now. Um, okay, so this movie really touched a nerve with me because one of my favorite places in the world in the past was a place called the Movie Land Wax Museum in Buena Park, California. I recently posted a video on our Facebook page that actually is a walkthrough of this wax museum before it closed. And this 
place may be the main reason I'm so into cinema. Because I remember going there with my parents when I was young, and they basically had a lot of... They staged a lot of the scenes from movies with actual props from the movies, with actual costumes, and they did them kind of the... A lot of them in these, like, elaborate things, like they did PT-109, a movie I had never heard of, would never have heard of, had I not gone to the Movie Land Wax Museum, where they had, like, a tank in water with, like, a wax figure of Cliff Robertson hanging off the side. Like, I would never have... I would never even know what PT-109 was. The Poseidon Adventure, they had, like, a full-on area where you'd like walked into the engine room and like it was a full scale engine room where they had wax figures hanging off the pipes of Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine and Stella Stevens. Um, there was a, you walked through the, the control room of the Starship Enterprise and they were all there. Anyway, I loved this place. I've been there probably 10 times in my life. Every time I went to California, I went there. It was my highlight every time. Um, and it got me into a lot of classics that I never would have known about. I wouldn't have known who Rudolph Valentino was or Mary Pickford or Douglas Fairbanks or Charlie Chaplin or Gene Harlow. Like all those people I know or I had an early interest in them because of the movie Land Waxers. Yeah. Anyway, I had no fucking idea that a movie was shot there. <laughs> oh, really? Until okay. I stumbled across this thing. <laughs> So it opens with the movie land. I actually see him like the outside and I'm like, Oh my God. <laughs> but I did know it starred Cameron Mitchell. So I'm like, Oh, well, it's still the movie land. Max. see even like the opening credits have like some of the fa- familiar uh, figures that like, even though this was shot in 1969, a lot of these figures were there when I was there. Like uh, in the opening sequence, we see the Gary Cooper from high noon. We see Bridget Bardot. We see Rudolph Valentino. Now, of course, we don't see the Poseidon adventure because this wasn't even it wasn't even fucking made yet. But some of those key figures I remembered, I were all there. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the greatest fucking thing ever, even though this movie's going to be <laughs> shitty. OK, so <laughs> the idea of this movie is Cameron Mitchell in an eye patch is this disgruntled effects guy who got fired from Paragon Pictures and uh, he's um, relegated to working as a guy in the, the guy who creates wax figures in the movie Land Wax Museum. But he's um, got an eye patch because <laughs> in a flashback sequence we discover that um, the head of Paragon Pictures was there. They had some sort of disagreement, and as Cameron Mitchell was lighting a cigarette at a party, the head of Paragon Pictures spit alcohol in his face so his face <laughs> caught on fire at this party so we get to see all this we see him like catch on fire and run out to the swimming pool that, on that's fire that's fucking rad and that's how he got his eye patch so that was pretty cool <laughs> don't believe me <laughs> I'm, oversell- I'm overselling this that's um, pretty okay. rad come on <laughs> so somehow he's got a thing for this starlet played by Mary Morgan or played by Anne Helm the starlet's named Mary Morgan. He's got a thing for her, and basically all these actors that work for Paragon Pictures are end up being killed, but miraculously, Cameron Mitchell at the same time happens to be making wax figures of them all for the Movie Land Wax Museum. Wow. So there's a okay. section... <laughs> there's a section where all these, you know, stars that have just died are showing up in the Wax Museum. I wonder how they're getting there. Um... 
So he's got a thing for Mary. He uh, wants her to pose for him. He also ends up going to a club. This is another huge, awesome part of this movie. He goes to a club, and it's Gazzari's, which if you're familiar with 80s cock rock, that's where, like, Motley Crue and all those guys played in the 80s was this famous club called Gazzari's that had been there since the 60s. So back in the 60s, it was like a... They was also rock and rock and roll playing, but they also had go-go dancers called the Gazzari Dancers. So there's a scene in Gazzari's where there's a band called the T-Bones playing on stage, and the Gazzari Dancers are all there. So again, for a slice of old old Hollywood from the 60s, this was awesome, because you not only had the movie Lion Wax Museum at the time, but you also had interior shots of Gazzari's, complete with the Gazzari Dancers. So... If you're a Hollywood nerd like me, that this was like amazing. So I was super into this. The go-go stuff was awesome. And then Cameron Mitchell's character, I guess because he can't get married, he decides to get this go-go dancer named Teresa to go with him. Takes her back to the Wax Museum. Of course, where he works, there's, of course, a giant bubbling vat. And I've always been like, what do they do with that giant bubbling <laughs> vat of wax? Like, it doesn't make <laughs> sense. Like, they don't, like, <laughs> dip things into it because the figures are already wax, right? Like, so, like, wax wax art is like you're taking a block of wax and you're carving it to look like someone. You're not putting anything in a bubbling vat of smoking wax, but all the Wax <laughs> Museum movies have this fucking vat, and I don't understand what it's doing there. But it's yeah, this, to pour that's... over people, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you can't even pour it over people because it's a vat in the middle of the room that's bubbling and smoking. You'd have to put something into it. Like, of course, the only reason it's there is so someone can fall into it in all these movies, but whatever. It's there. It's fun. It's a, And there's also, like, you know, tubes and stuff, like a mad scientist laboratory. And she's there, the dumb go-go dancer. She's a real dummy. She's like, you know, you know, like that kind of stupid uh, squeaky voice. She actually, the actress Victoria Carroll actually ended up doing animation voiceover later in life. Um, but she's this dumb go-go dancer. She's in the vat, wax vat room. She gets chased around the movie land wax museum. Again, kind of cool, but shittily done. Um, and then she ends up getting killed. And then there was another pretty standout scene with her where... Cameron Mitchell's driving with her in the car and he she's a corpse and he's like talking to her and holy shit she was like very convincing like not not <laughs> since like Gorotica have I seen a corpse like this convincing where she's just like kind of bouncing along in the car and falling on him and shit and and uh with her eyes wide open the whole time it was it was pretty astounding how this actress was able to pull this off so again I, I feel like we're the only podcast in history to talk about Gorotica I'm pretty sure no one else has ever mentioned that fucking That's true. Movie. I know everyone's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, it's a, well, anyway, look it up. It's a, it's a Hugh Gallagher movie. Yeah, check it out. Yeah. <laughs> I like Garotica. I, I used to love Garotica. Anyway, um, so eventually, you know, after this scene with the corpse, um, there's a showdown in the in the wax fat room with, the, of course, the head of Paragon Pictures the actress uh, Marie Morgan, um, the fucking um, John Bud Cardos plays a cop. There's another cop there. And the but John Bud Cardos, <laughs> yeah, who was also production manager on this thing. And there was a showdown in the wax museum in the um, wax vat room, and yay, yay, yay. Um, 
anyway, I, I, I don't know, man. This was shitty. Let's let's be honest. But again, <laughs> for a fan of this of the movie Land Wax Museum and kind of old Hollywood, um, it was pretty cool to see some of these locations. Like for that reason alone, I was pretty into this. But it it was boring. It didn't make any sense. Cameron Mitchell was terrible as usual. Um, <laughs> like everyone was pretty terrible in this, except and the only the, the one girl who was good was only good when she was dead. So I mean, I don't really have a lot to, of good to say about it. But I, it was it was a it was a pretty fun surprise though. Like just watching this movie that I never would have watched, and then opening with the movie line wax museum, and then actually being shot there was a pretty big treat for me. But I'm. This was a very limited group of people that this is gonna hit. If you don't know, if you've never been to this place, you're gonna be like, "This is the most boring, shitty movie ever." So, it was terrible. But um, but for me, for a nostalgia factor, there was a lot to lot to like. Um, it was a widescreen print, which is um, kind of nice to see. Um, but it was not a very good print. But still widescreen, so that was kind of cool. But. Uh, um, I would give this one a pass, but me personally, I'll probably check it out at some point again, just to kind of relive some of that uh, movie land wax museum stuff. So that's the nightmare and wax from 1969. How do you fe- think that actress feels where she's like, you're only good as a corpse, baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, like, how she does was, she feel? <laughs> she was, she was good. as I liked her when she was go-go dancing. Said all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. At least it's two things now. <laughs> she she was probably the best actor in this. I'll give that's her like, that. That's like that's like that's like Lawrence Kasdan being like when he's filming the big show, being like, "Hey, Kevin Costner, you're fucking awesome as a corpse. Too bad I have to cut you out of the movie." <laughs> hey man, weekend at Bernie's. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Terry Kaiser as a corpse, pretty boss. <laughs> okay. Um, so I actually decided to do the next one in this series as well, uh, just because I had time last night. So I decided to go continue on to the next one. Um, and that's called The Devil's Hand from 1961, directed by the unfortunately named William J. Hole Jr. Um, probably best known, best known, um, only known. Probably not known. <laughs> you, I actually think you might have talked about this movie. He did a movie called The Ghost of Dragstrip Hollow. Did well, you talk- I haven't talked about. I haven't talked about, it, but I know it. Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty much his claim to fame. Okay. So this one, black and white, actually a nice clean four by three print. Um, again, I'm pretty surprised by some of the prints I'm getting in this. Anyway, opens with this groovy kind of surf theme music um, for this movie called The Devil's Hand. And I'm like, this is weird. And it's got like, I think it had like one of those like surfer doll things. Like it's kind of got this like Polynesian like background as the credits are playing. And I'm like, this isn't this fucking movie about like devil worship? Like what the hell is this surf <laughs> music playing for? Anyway, it was a really good song by Baker Knight. This is so, a <laughs> Yeah, and you could, you could search up the... Uh, the devil's hand theme music on youtube and there it is and it's really good so liked that um then we're like um introduced to this guy played by robert alda best known for playing george gershwin in rhapsody in blue back in the day uh, but he's like awakening every night he's telling his girlfriend and he's awakening every night to these visions of this woman who's dancing in the clouds beckoning to him 
And, you know, I was getting a real Eraserhead vibe at the beginning here, and I'm like, okay, well, this is cool. And uh, it actually looks really, the print was a really nice looking print. So I'm like, okay, I'm kind of down with this. We're introduced to his girlfriend, Donna, and he's telling her about these dreams. And then they they end up, I can't remember how they ended up there, but they end up in this doll store in, in downtown Hollywood. They're downtown Los Angeles. And they go into this doll store, and there's this weird thing where he sees this doll that looks exactly like the girl in the dream. And he's like, oh, weird, that's so weird that there's this doll here that looks like the girl in the dream. And then his girlfriend sees a doll that looks exactly like her, and she's like, oh, my God, why is there a doll here that looks just like me? (laughs) And I was like, oh, this is so weird. And I was actually pretty intrigued. I'm like, what's going on? Why are they in this weird doll store? And the even weirder thing is, why why is the owner of the doll store played by Neil Hamilton, who was Commissioner Gordon in the Batman TV series? And I'm like, that's weird that he's here. And I'm like, okay, well, at least I recognize someone. (laughs) So they're in the doll store, that happens, and then he ends up <laughs> commissioner gordon ends up going into the back room of the doll store where it turns out that he's also the leader of a satanic cult and he's having <laughs> in the back of a fucking doll store and he's having it and he goes and has a mass anyway he tells basically he ends up telling the the cult leader guy ends up telling rick the boyfriend guy that he knows, you know, he can find who this woman is because she's the one that, or she, he, he needs to go to her house to something about figuring out she's the owner of the doll. So he's, cause he's like, who is this woman? And he's like, I can tell you she's the owner of the doll. So he goes to her house. And then of course it's the woman from his dreams. Turns out that she was actually like putting him under a spell because she, now again, why, why would she do this? She's like this, like, <laughs> cult leader like woman who can get anything she wants and the whole premise is that she saw him walking down the street and was like I must have him and he's not like the he's not the greatest like he's fine but he's not like awesome so that's why she's so she's like been going into his dream she's been going all this effort to go into his dreams like why didn't she just go up to him and say hi <laughs> why would you go through all this fucking effort but anyway she goes through all this effort she's in his dreams they meet he immediately falls for her, dumps his girlfriend. There's a lot of girlfriend dumping this episode. Anyway, she dumps his girlfriend, <laughs> dumps the girlfriend, and ends up hooking up with this woman, Bianca, played by Linda Christian. And then she's like, well, if you're going to be with me, you have to be in my cult. So they go down to the back to the fucking Commissioner Gordon doll store, go into the back room. He says, okay, yeah, I'll be in the cult. Throws on the and bat so- signal. <laughs> no, no bad signal he's bad boy no. so anyway he's like he's like okay i'll be in the cult and then like there's there's like a ceremony where like he sees this he's like this is, i think it might even be before he decides he's going to be in the cult there's this thing that happens where this is a like, spinning blade they like put a like a sacrifice down on an altar and then this spinning blade goes around and if the person like on the altar is like worthy then the blade will bend and if it's not worthy then the person will get stabbed so there's this whole sequence that happens where like the blade comes down and of course it bends and i'm like they're all rubber blades dude like this looks so stupid but anyway whatever if i was watching this and i was thinking about should i be in this cult or not i'd be like watching that and i'd be like Fuck, this cult is lame fucking bring me over to koresh dude but like that's not what happens he's like oh yeah this is really interesting i'll be in the cult but, of course, the cult comes with rules. He can't talk about the cult and all this stuff. 
Meanwhile, Donna, his girlfriend, has been, like, the reason they were dolls is her voodoo dolls, of course. So she's been put in the hospital because, like, the bad uh, Commissioner Gordon put a, a fucking pin through her, so she's got back problems. Ugh, I'm in the hospital. So she's in the hospital, <laughs> and um, but I guess Rick starts to feel bad that he, like, dumped her on her ass and left her in the hospital for this cult chick. So he starts to feel bad, and then he eventually, like, pulls the pin out to help her, and then, it's, you know, it's revealed that um, you know, he might, you know, he's he might not be, like, loyal to the cult and all this shit, and then there's a big finale in the fucking back of the doll store. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. It seems overly complicated. It's pretty complicated, but dude, it was fucking. It was lean. It was. I was really into it. Uh, I was not expecting to a shitty a movie called The Devil's Hand. I wasn't expecting to like it. I totally dug this movie. I thought it was a fun <laughs> little low budget movie um, that was that I, I actually quite enjoyed this one. This is one I'd actually pick up again if it came. Across. Yeah, totally. Um, so weird trivia. Um, this is weird trivia. So Bianca, like the the racerhead chick, the cult girl, is actually the real life sister of Robert Alta's girlfriend in this movie. So the girl he was dating that he let, and then he left her for the cult woman. Those two women in real life were sisters, which I thought was very very odd. Um. This is also known for being one of the last movies that Jack Pierce did makeup on, which I was like, wow, man, holy shit, he was really, like, slumming it at the end of his career. And, um, oh, and the, the other weird thing is there's this, oh my God, every time they go into the cult ceremony, there was this guy there, this black guy with, like, no shirt on, playing bongo drums, but it would be like, <laughs> no, but it would be like, it would be like, bum, 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 bum. right and i'd be like oh and he looked so like so serious like he was like i gotta get the the fucking bongos right right like he'd be (laughs) so making sure oh i gotta make sure that i'm in time and it was so slow and i'm like how is this guy like struggling here like this is not hard to do if i I don't get these bongos right they're gonna feed me to the rubber blades (laughs) totally man like and it was like and it was it just felt it felt racist to me and he's there doing his bongos but he wasn't like fucking going to town on the bongos like in the theme song like you know i could see that if he was like if the theme surf song was playing and he was fucking bongoing like that would be super like whoa like what's going on here like that would be fucking hard but like just this like boom 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 it wasn't even that fast it was more like bah, 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 bah. i don't even know if that was that many bah, bahs. like it, it might have been like bah, 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 right like i don't know but anyway it was very slow and i was <laughs> no like, one has ever I, spent this much time okay. on bongos in the devil's hand i have a point i have a point i have a point <laughs> So the whole thing, the thing with this guy is I'm like, who is this guy? Anyway, it's this guy named Chano. And he actually was famous for his bongo drumming. And it was like a thing in this in this in the in the late 50s. Chano like came over from Africa and like was doing bongo drums and like they, he was putting on fucking records. And like this was like his big his big move movie break and i'm like what the fuck so actually when i was doing notes i was actually listening to chato and i think that's why i'm so into the bongo drums right now but anyway 
I would totally, <laughs> totally recommend watching this one. Holy this fuck. This a lot of fun. So I know you have it on your Gorehouse Greats or whatever the probably. fuck it is. So I no. think this is probably the best one so far, other than Blood Mania. Fucking Chano. <laughs> Chano, yeah. Look him up. All his albums are on YouTube, dude. He he's kind of <laughs> like the he's kind of like those records you come across in the thrift store now. It's like, oh, Herb Albert. Oh, Chano. Oh. Yeah, if if I see a Chano record in the thrift store, I will be fucking buying it. <laughs> okay. And he like yells on the record. It's like. Bum, bum, and he's like, oh, you know, it's awesome, dude. Chino. <laughs> okay. Fucking hell. So that's the devil's hand. So again, again, um, this was like a fucking, I would never, ever have watched this movie. So, yeah, it's a good one. Devil's Jesus, hand. Jesus Christ, I don't even know how to follow that. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, I'm speechless right now. <laughs> I'm just thinking of bongo drums. You want to? Um, you're gonna listen to Chano right after, dude. I'm totally gonna see if he's on Spotify. Oh, I'm sure he is. How is it spelled? C H A I N O. Oh, like chain with an O on the end? Yeah. Okay, Ch- Maybe it's Chino or something. I don't know. No, I think so, it's just Chano. Chano artist. Bimboo is one of his songs. Oh my God! The picture they have—it looks like he's like wearing like the African uh, like garb. Yeah, oh. I know. You hear that shit? Yeah, that's way more complicated than what he was doing in this Hang movie. Hang on. <laughs> this, is, this is the most played song on Spotify. See, it's pretty good. Yeah. It. This is called Bimboo. That's, again, way more complicated than what he was doing in this movie. It's so got a whole 81... He did all that shit, man, and then he made this movie, and he seemed to be really struggling. So I don't know what was going on with him, but maybe this was the down downside of it. Maybe he was like fucking what's his name, uh, um, fucking West, West Bentley. Bentley. Yeah, maybe this was the maybe West he Bentley. just had performance anxiety. Big white man with camera, scared. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. <laughs> anyway, it's pretty okay, rad. Okay, enough of Chano. Um, <laughs> shit. Let's talk about Critters Attack from 2019. Let's do that. Let's do that. Okay. Um, a, a movie I'm super happy I didn't pay fucking more than 99 cents to rent. Let's 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 call a spade a spade. So, you know, I love Critters and Critters 2. Like, you know, I think Critters 1 and Critters 2 are pretty fun. Like, I think the Chiodo brothers, their puppets are great. I think Mick Garris in the second one, he got to kill the Easter Bunny. That's pretty great. I think the first one has a lot of good moments. So let's, you know, it's 2019. It's it's 30, 33 years since the original. Let's do a let's do a fifth entry in the series. Why not? Let's send it direct to video. So after watching uh, last year, Shutter did a a series called Critters: A New Binge, where the episodes were like I think they were like 10 minutes long, and it worked out to be like 80 something minutes. So it was kind of like a a movie cut into 10 minute episodes and it was fucking horrible. Mm-hmm. It's actually not even on shutter anymore. And I don't know why I couldn't track oh, down weird. why it's been removed, but it was bad. So after that, I didn't have very high hopes for this, 
But then when I saw it was the same production company as the Banana Splits movie, my hopes kind of went up a little bit. (laughs) So this movie starts with a bunch of callbacks to the original. You know, you've got a farmhouse. You've got a guy on a bike delivering stuff who gets like he gets murdered by critters early on because the critters come down in their spaceship and land in the small town and they start chewing on their residents of the town. And you've got this cop who's like the uncle to this these two kids niece and nephew who are he's a white guy and they're african-american so i don't understand they never explained why that is i just know he's their uncle um you've got d wallace returning mm-hmm. to the series after the first one she just shows up in like an early scene as this crazy cat la- lady who actually ends up having a secret bunker in her house that tracks crites and then she disappears f- till like the last like 15 minutes of the movie so basically what Critters Attack is, it's the Critters coming to a small town, attacking residents. The main actress is a character called Dre, played by Tashiana Washington, who works at a sushi restaurant. And she has these dreams of going to college, and she doesn't get into college. So she just kind of stumbles around the town, and then she ends up becoming like the hero of the movie because the critters are there and someone needs to fight them so why not her basically um i'm just like watching this i'm like you know what i kind of got to take this movie for what it is it's a fucking critter sequel in 2019 Mm -hmm. like lower your expectations accordingly like seriously what are you expecting from a critters movie in 2019 well turns out not much um so you know this felt more like the first two movies in tone like because in part three it had leonardo dicaprio as a 12 year old it was in an apartment building and then in part four the critters went to space Mm. and i'm like okay so this feels more like it's that small town it's the critters attacking people and it's got some fun scenes critters shenanigans in it you know it's got like it's got like a guy having a shower and he reaches for his bath puff and instead of a bath puff, it's a critter and he starts rubbing the critter on himself and the critter eats him. I'm like, yeah, that's that's pretty great. And, and but I'm so I'm watching this and I'm like, yeah, it's OK for the first third. But I'm like, where the fuck are the bounty hunters? OK, like the bounty hunters in the first two movies were highlights for me because I'm like in the first one, they come down. One of them takes the form of the of the town's preacher played by M. Emmett Walsh and causes havoc at a bowling alley. In part two, one of the bounty hunters turns to a playboy centerfold who rips the staple out of her stomach because he sees her in a magazine. Where's that stuff? Like, that's not in this. So I'm like, okay, I want some bounty hunters. But then, dude, here's where the movie fucks up royally. They decide, in their infinite wisdom, you've got these critters who look pretty good because they're puppets still and they look okay and they're running around chewing on people and causing havoc. They decide to introduce a female critter to the mix. And here's the problem. The female critter is supposed to be cute. And I'm using air quotes when I say cute. So she looks entirely different from the critters. She's got white fur she's got a cute little critter face and she makes little cooing noises and stuff and she gets befriended by dre and her buddies because she's a 
good critter. She hangs out in a backpack and googly, googly, googlies. And, you know, all the other critters kind of come after them because they want the girl critter. And, you know, they probably want to fuck the girl critter, but that's she's too cutesy. So they don't they never address that matter. Right. And I'm just like, why the fuck did you do this? The design of the girl critter is awful. It looks like something. It looks like a reject from the movie Munchies from the 80s, mm-hmm. which was a Critters like ripoff or, or even Hobgoblins, the Rick Sloan movie from the 80s, which was put out by Vinegar Syndrome and is an awful, awful movie. It looks like one of those puppets. It looks like the imp from Sorority Babes and the Slime Bowl Bowlerama oh, God, looks yeah. better than the female critter in this movie. OK, that's how bad it is. And I'm like do not like this is me do not like through the whole movie and then i'm also like where's d wallace why did you tempt me with d wallace and then she's in two scenes in the first half of this movie like what the fuck is going on right now and then it just like does standard critter stuff you know it brings back the rolling critters ball from part two i'm like but part two did this why are you bringing this back i don't need this and then wallace just that isn't in this movie and the movie's just stumbling along with like random critter attacks and then admittedly in the finale the synthy score kicks in and the crate killing begins and there's some pretty good moments of them like chopping the tops of critters heads off and the green blood spewing all over the place and d wallace shows up with one of the bounty hunter guns and i'm like okay this is fine but it's not good it's really not good it's like it's too late for a Critter sequel. Yeah. Before this, the last century was in 1992. It's too late for a Critter sequel. It was the last one was in 1992, really? Yeah, like Critters 4 was 1992. Holy smokes. So, it's too late. And I mean, I think they had good intentions going into this, but it just doesn't work. It it it's just completely skippable completely doesn't understand what made the critters movies works like there's moments in this where i feel like they understood what the critters movies were doing like that bath puff moment i talked about and a few moments of the critters being like goofy but generally it wastes d wallace it doesn't know where it's going and that fucking female critter i cannot tell you how badly that took me out of the movie i don't want a goddamn cute critter cooing and being like, I don't want that from my Critters movies, okay? But at least it's better than the new binge. I'll give it that much. Nice. So I'm glad I paid 99 cents to rent this rather than dished out the $18 for the Blu-ray. Because then I would have been really angry at myself. No shit. So Critters Attack, completely and utterly skippable Stick to your Scream Factory box set that came out last year, and you'll yeah. be fine. All right. Well, I have, I've never seen a Critters movie, I don't think, so um, I'm going to have to get back on those original ones. Yeah, stick to the first two, and you'll be fine. All right. Okay. Um, I decided to go. I've never heard of this movie. Um, um, another <laughs> kind of deep cut. Um, and this is a um, 70s crime movie that um, I uh, happened upon called The Nickel Ride from 1974, directed by Robert Mulligan, who um, did uh, 
Kill a Mockingbird with Gregory Peck. Hmm. Um, so this is the follow-up movie that Jason Miller made after The Exorcist. And uh, he stars in this as a guy named Cooper. And he's uh, he's what you call a key man. He's a guy who works for the mob. And uh, he basically has the keys for all their like warehouses where they store their illicit goods. He works for a guy named Carl, played by John Hillerman, who was Higgins on Magnum. And um, the, the, the main premise of the movie that's established very, very early on is that he's they're trying to secure a new warehouse for the mob to put their goods. So Miller's character is, is trying to like, he's got a line on this warehouse. He's got a connection with this real estate agent named Elias. And he's trying to like seal the deal. But Elias is kind of fucking him around and saying, okay, well we can get this done, but you need to come up with some money so we can pay off the cops. So Miller's like, okay, cool. I'm a, you know, that's what I do. I'm a fixer. I can make this happen. So that's all established. Um, he's got a woman played by Linda Haynes named Sarah. She was in Rolling Thunder. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much what's going on at the beginning. Then um, what happens is he gets a call one day and he's basically told, okay, the pr- price of the protection is now going way up. So you now need to come up with this amount of money if we're going to get this warehouse deal worked out. And so Miller's like, fuck, I gotta, like, make this happen. So he's, like, talking to John Hillerman about it. And um, because basically with this all happening, it's kind of um, people are starting to feel like maybe Cooper doesn't have the kind of connections and the hold on the city like he once did. So maybe he's kind of on his way out. So, like... John Hillerman's character is losing faith in him. Miller is losing faith in himself. Um, and then Bo Hopkins shows up. John Hillerman hires Bo Hopkins to basically keep an eye on on Cooper. And Bo Hopkins, of course, you, you'd know him from lots of 70s movies. He was in, like, Tentacles and Mutant and all kinds of shit. Definitely would know who he is. But he in this movie, he's, like, the super confident, like, up-and-coming cowboy hitman guy. So... The movie is basically about just Cooper trying to come to terms with this and then him starting to get paranoid that he's going to be kind of taken out so that the new whoever the new person can come in and take over his job. So at one point in the movie, he basically goes on the lamb up to the like, um, like up to the country. But Bo Hopkins is hot on his trail. Cooper's become becoming more and more paranoid. He's getting into fights with his girlfriend. And um, yeah, it's, it's pretty much about this guy who basically had control falling out of control and it's really really good like this is a movie like if you've seen the exorcist which most people have you kind of know what miller's like the guy wasn't in a lot of movies but he's very similar to father karis father karis and um where he's like just got that weary world weary look to him and that just kind of like been through everything he's just fucking tired right and that's kind of how you feel in this movie and um you know there's not there's there's a couple of shootouts and um but this is mainly a character study and a kind of uh uh somewhat depressing crime drama i guess more than a crime thriller but yeah it was a real big surprise to me i mean i've never heard of this movie 
And it was, um, yeah, I mean, if I, if I was going to be, like, doing another underrated list, I'd probably put this on it, because it's just performances-wise, particularly Miller, like, just so good, man. And um, just seeing L.A. at the time, and, you know, it, it, you know, most mob movies are so sensationalized with all the shootouts and stuff, and this was just more of a kind of, like, this guy who, you know, the mob character you don't usually see. Usually it's the hitman or the boss, right? Like, you don't usually see this kind of dude who's, like, doing this, you know, the side stuff, making real estate deals for them. And, you know, maybe for some this would be kind of boring. But with this, with an actor like this, I just, I was pretty compelled throughout. Um, Yeah, really, really cool little movie that I uh, wasn't expecting. Um, I didn't really know what it was. And it came on a double feature with another movie that I'm going to talk about later. But, um, yeah, pretty cool. Um, I know Tarantino's a big fan of this. He put this on his... Um, the first... He used to do all these um, festivals at the Alamo Drafthouse of, like, these like kind of lost movies. And I know in the very first one he did, this movie was on it. So, yeah, definitely worth a look if you like 70s crime movies. Um, and Jason Miller as well, just because he's not... He was in this, he was in Exorcist 3, he was in, I think, Ninth Configuration, but didn't yeah. really have a lot of opportunities so didn't he also um didn't he also star and write a write a movie called that championship season about like basketball he did a the... play that's because yeah that was before yeah because that was that was made into a movie though yeah that's right yeah okay. i don't know if he was in the movie but i know he wrote the play and he won like oh, okay. a Pulitzer Prize or something for that oh, okay. play um but yeah that's where he came from he was a playwright and then fell into the exorcist and then this was his follow-up. So yeah, if you're a fan of The Exorcist and don't haven't seen Jason Miller in a lot and like him, definitely check this one out. Yeah, I was I was looking up the. Uh, it's written by a guy called Eric Roth, and it's the first thing he wrote like really. And then I'm looking at this guy's uh, filmography of stuff he wrote, and I'm like, whoa, this guy's done a lot of stuff. He did like The Concord, Airport 79. After this, oh, yeah. uh, he did. Suspect with Cher and uh, Jeff uh, Randy, uh, Dennis Quaid, which is a good movie. Mm-hmm. He wrote um, Forrest Gump. He did really? the screenplay for Forrest Gump. Oh my god! Okay. He wrote the he wrote the screenplays for The Horse Whisperer and Ali, Munich. Wow. And uh, most uh, curious case of Benjamin Button, and most recently A Star Is Born, which was nominated for an Oscar, like the 2018 wow. version. So that's crazy. That, yeah, that's. I was like, whoa, when I looked at his name, I was like, okay, well, it's got some clout behind it. But yeah, did you watch this on Blue? DVD. DVD, okay. So I guess we'll find out what the other half is later. But yeah, yeah. It, sounds, it sounds pretty interesting because, like, that's the thing, you're right. Like, I'm interested in that element of, of crime, but it's always so sensationalized. Like it always just shows people shooting each other and, you know, massacres and all that stuff. And you don't really get a picture of these people who are like there, but like just kind of like sort of out of harm's way in a way, like doing their jobs. And then like every once in a while harm comes towards them. And that's kind of what this sounds like it's trying to do. So yeah, that sounds interesting. So it's definitely interesting. And is it, is it hard to come by? Nope. No, nope. okay. So Show I factory. might Okay, I might have to check it out then cuz it sounds yeah. pretty good. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, let's go from uh, uh, a mobby a crime drama to a uh, a fucked up uh, 
Australian movie because I, I, I really want to know what the fuck is up with Australians, dude. Like, if they're not friggin' doing, like, Crocodile Dundee movies, they're doing fucked up shit like this. And this is a movie that I'd that I'd heard about and uh, was kind of interested in because I, I think that after f- the French extreme revolution, I think that, like, Australia has the market cornered on like messed up kind of movies, you know, like the loved ones and, mm-hmm. you know, Snowtown murders and, and stuff like that. I think they've got the, and Wolf Creek, I think they've got the market, the, the market corner for these kind of things. And this is a movie I'd heard about and was kind of curious about, cause I'd heard it compared to like the uh, Berlin syndrome, which is a movie, you know, I really loved yeah. that I put on my best of 2017. Um, and Arrow was having a sale, and Arrow happened to put this out on Blu-ray over in the UK, and it's a movie right, called yeah. it's a movie called Hounds of Love from 2016, yeah. uh, written and directed by Ben Young, uh, inspired by true events. Which, when I looked into it, it was inspired by like I think two different uh, crimes that occurred in in Australia at the time. So what this is is this movie opens with you being uncomfortable. Because it opens with this just lingering, lingering slow motion of this guy watching these teenage girls playing sports in this tennis, like this, it's like a tennis court. And they're playing like some, some form of like with this, with this ball and the camera's just lingering on slow motion close-ups of their legs and all the hairs on their legs and like sweat dripping down their legs. And you're just like, I'm so fucking creeped out right now. Like this is so wrong how they've started this movie, but it makes, it will make sense because it's set in 1987. And the setup is this, this guy seemingly going through the motions of this, mundane stuff you know like he's like you know coming in the house and preparing food or whatever but it turns out he's got this girl locked this teenage girl locked in a room in his house and then he needs to get rid of the body eventually so it kind of introduces you to these characters who are like just fucking terrible terrible people and then from there we meet a girl called vicky played by ashley cummings who's like just your typical teenage girl her her mom is like very protective of her and she wants to go to a party and of course the mom says you're not going to a party i don't trust you being outside because there's been girls missing from the area you're staying home she sneaks out the window decides to want to go to this party and runs afoul of our couple from earlier in the movie who played by emma booth and stephen curry who of course have bad intentions so they end up taking her to their house saying hey we'll give you a ride to the party why don't you stop by our place you can have a drink to loosen up before you go to the party and of course they end up drugging her and abducting her and locking her in this room in their house that's soundproof or whatever and the stuff that happened like that scene that drugging abduction scene is just so fucking well done because it's creepy but at the same time it's staged the moody blues song nights in white satin mm-hmm. and so it's like nights in white satin is playing and if you know that song it's a creepy song like if you take it out of context because it's really slow and like kind of like you know pulsating and just like and that song's playing 
and she's having she's drugged so you can see her perspective where she started getting hazy and wavering out and meanwhile the couple's just like dancing in front of her all like erotically and like he's looking at her and like winking and grabbing his his wife's breasts and you're just like fuck i'm creeped right the fuck out right now so she ends up being abducted and then from there it just kind of becomes this kind of like victim playing against her captors kind of thing you know it it's got the you know the the female baddie played by emma booth having this like really weird bizarre jealousy of the victim and then the the husband just being like super abusive to not only the victim but to his wife and it's just this really fucking messed up love triangle where and it just keeps it's like a twisted twisted love triangle but it's not a love triangle because honestly the teenage girl has no romantic interest in any of them it's just she mm-hmm. was just it's a victim and she's being forced to you know deal with all this unpleasantries of like like you know you know being hit and you know being a victim of like you know an attempt attempted rapes and stuff like that like she's just like in it and is just trying to survive until someone can find her right but it's just like it just builds and builds and builds and it gets more and more intense as it goes along and there's just people like they're just at each other's throats through the whole movie and you know, I'm just like, holy fuck. It, this is a grueling film to watch. Like, you know, like if if you're not if you can't handle this kind of stuff, you got to stay the fuck away from this movie because like every like it's just the people in it are terrible people and they do terrible things. And the way it's staged is just blunt, like just blunt, like this is what happened. This is what's happening. Blunt, you know, like yeah. n- no forgiveness, like but at the same time. I see a lot of comments online deriding this movie like, oh, typical white man director raping women all over the place. You know, like like you get that from a lot of these movies, like people taking offense at the movie, but it actually doesn't show too much. So if you're worried yeah. about that kind of stuff, you don't need to worry. It's kind of like Revenge from a couple years ago. Remember, like the movie is a rape revenge movie but the actual rape stuff in that movie was just staged in a way that if you can't handle that stuff which is kind of me it's okay it doesn't you know yeah it doesn't show more than it needs to and you know and i'm just like i'm watching this movie and i'm like holy fuck you're like this girl needs to get out of this situation but how is she going to get out of the situation because the people who are holding her captive are so fucking out there like they're finished right um so like i said very loosely based on 1986 events where there was a couple going around australia kidnapping girls and i think it was like their fifth victim or something that actually escaped them and turned them in so it's kind of based on that kind of stuff which you know us living in british columbia you know well i wasn't living in british columbia at the time but you were like all the stuff with um where all in the 80s where we had a, we had our own little you know serial kidnapper killer out out in Cl- bc clifford olson yeah, yeah clifford olson like you were around when that was going on you remember uh, yeah. the, the fear that was going on where people didn't want their their kids to go out at night especially if you were a girl and stuff and that's kind of what this is 
sort of based like in the basis of this movie too but um very intense uh very well done like extremely great production design um that slow motion scene that opens the movie fucking great but there's also a scene right after uh vicky gets abducted that is just panning through the neighborhood that she's like it pans through the neighborhood leading to the house that she's captured in and it's just everyone out watering their lawns or skipping the girls skipping rope in that and it's done in that slow motion very pan shot slow motion lingering and it's such a good fucking shot that i'm like like i love shit like that like you and i we love those kind of like yeah lingering steady cam panning kind of stuff and it's so good in this dude like super good and you know and there's some brutality in here obviously that some people aren't going to be able to handle um but the performances by all three of the leads top notch especially uh the two villains in this emma booth and stephen curry um very he's especially a very recognizable australian actor i think he was in rogue the greg mclean killer alligator movie mm-hmm, yeah uh, but he's just super creepy because he's got that porn stash and he's always winking like there's throughout the movie he's always winking at the vicky character and you're just like why the fuck are you winking at her she's your fucking victim yeah. like this is fucking wrong so like i said if you cannot handle this kind of subject matter you might want to avoid it but it's a really well done crime like it's a it's a it's not a horror movie i've seen it uh passed as a horror movie but it's a crime movie like it's a true crime movie through and through it's very very well done very well acted very gets under your skin really well um so if this is i can't say i can recommend it for entertainment value but it's a very well done highly recommended true crime type movie if you're into that kind of stuff i went into this not sure what i was gonna get i came out of it going like yeah yeah there's something fucking wrong with australians that's basically my (laughs) takeaway from this like what the fuck is going on in australia right (laughs) so so yeah hounds i i super recommend hounds of love i know it is out on um blu-ray and dvd in north america if you don't have the region free capabilities but uh Arrow's done a really good job on the on their release. Lots of good special features and uh, interviews and stuff like that. But yeah, I I got way more than I was expecting from this, and uh, yeah, totally recommend it for sure. Nice. Yeah, I've been wanting to check that one out. Yeah. So, so Hounds of Love from 2016. Next time Arrow has a sale, you should grab it if you haven't already. Yeah, no, I will for sure. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, let's do the uh, other half of the Nickel Ride double feature, which okay. is available from Shout Factory um, on DVD. And this is a movie <laughs> I really loved as a kid, but it's uh, definitely much maligned by a lot of people. But I still fucking love it, and I still thought it was awesome. And that's a movie called 99 and 44 100% Dead. Um, oh, okay. I've heard yeah. of it, but I've never seen it. Yeah, I love it, man. But it's from 1974. It's directed by John Frankenheimer, who, of course, has made all kinds of great movies from uh, Manchurian Candidate to The Train um, to Ronin. Um, but he, I know this is one that he's uh, even he's come out and said he's embarrassed by, but I don't give a shit. 
Um, and I think the problem with this movie is no one really knew what where it went. Like it's like it's 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 like a fucking comic book. It's one of those movies. It's just everything's really kind of ridiculous. But it never it doesn't quite go into comedy. It doesn't and then but it's almost too light to be a drama. So I think it was just especially in this time period, just people didn't know what to do with it. But it opens up with like this like really pulpy, great Henry Mancini score playing and this like pop art cartoons is the opening credits. And it stars Richard Harris as this hitman named Harry Crown. And you know, when I think of Richard Harris, I think of like old man Richard Harris. I think of like the unforgiven, you know? Um, or mainly I think of him yelling a lot in Tarzan the Ape Map. Um, but I don't remember, I don't think of old, um, young Richard Harris when he was fucking cool. And I should, because I do know this movie quite well. I used to love it when I was young. But he stars this guy named Harry Crown. So the movie opens with this pulpy opening. Then it's got a bit of narration by him, which I usually don't like, but it's okay in this because it's very minimal. Um, and we have basically <coughs> see these two mob guys uh, pulling up to this, like, um, to this, you know, on the on the docks of, like, I think it's in New York or maybe it's in California. Anyway, they pull up on the docks and they pull this, like, corpse out of a car that's literally wearing concrete shoes and throw it into the water. And then the the camera goes under the water, and then there's like this like narration over and music playing over like this very beautifully staged like underwater scene of all these corpses and things that have like been discarded in the water. I can't really explain it very well, but it's 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 a very very memorable sequence that uh, will stick with you if you've if you've seen this movie. After that, we get, you know, a really good car chase. Frankenheimer's great at car chases. Then we're introduced to this guy named Uncle Frank. And Uncle Frank is this um, mobster who's, um, you know, runs runs a lot of the territory, but he's being threatened by this guy named uh, Big Eddie, who's another mobster who's trying to take over the territory. So he calls he calls Richard Harris, Harry, Harry Crown character, and says, look, man, you gotta come out here and you gotta help me take care of this fucking Big Eddie guy. So Richard Harris is like, okay, cool, I'll come out. He comes out to the town, hooks up with his, his like lady in the town, played by Anne Turkle, who was, um, she was a supermodel at the time. Um, beautiful, beautiful woman. She plays this woman named Buffy. Um, so they've got, she's very, like, sultry and, and uh, but a really cool character. Like, there's She's not a femme fatale. She's just like this cool chick that he's into. So he meets up with her. Um, um, and it's basically him trying to help Uncle Frank take out this uh, big Eddie dude. Um, but along for the ride is um, this um, sidekick that Uncle Frank puts uh, puts with Richard Harris named Tony, played by... Um, David Hall, who was in the movie called I Dismember Mama. You might have seen that oh, one. Oh, that one, yep. Yeah, Didn't, it wasn't in a lot of movies, but he was in that. But he's great as this kind of, like, silent, awkward sidekick. Uh, we've got Chuck Connors as a villain called Claw Zuckerman. And he has, like, a claw hand, but, like, like he can, like, interchange his claw for other things. <laughs> so there's this great scene where he's, like, threatening this prostitute, and he's, like, got the claw. And then he'll, like, go behind his suitcase, and then he'll, like, whip something else out and it'll be a knife 
then he'll like go behind the suitcase and then he'll whip it out again and it'll be like a feather. Why does he have to keep going behind the suitcase? Well, because it's like because he's like trying to like he's changing the uh, claw and he's like surprising her with what he's got. Peekaboo! It's really (laughs) fucking funny. So like it's that kind of humor where it's like kind of goofy, but it's not like airplane goofy, but it's just enough to make it not serious. So Claude Zuckerman's this bad guy. Um, Big Eddie's played by Bradford Dillman, who uh, you probably know from like Piranha and like Escape from the Planet of the Apes. But he's um, he's the the other mob boss. But he's always like he's all again kind of going over the top, like with these like kind of like sulky faces and things like that, and like kind of like almost like tantrumy. And I actually found out afterwards because I thought it was a great performance. He based the performance on his own baby. Which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's actually a there's a character named Baby played by Catherine Bauman, who's like this hooker that Tony's trying to get with. There's a there is a femme fatale named Clara who's great, but there's scenes like you know they'll they'll be going through a sewer and like as they're walking through the sewer you'll hear Richard Harris's voiceover saying they used to talk about how. Um, you know, people flushed alligators down the toilets, and uh, turns out it was true. So they'll be walking through the sewer, there's all these alligators down there. So it's just this really kind of goofy humor. But then it's got some really great scenes. Like, it's got this great um, scene where one of the characters is tied up in a classroom in an in a elementary school with a bomb on her. And Richard Harris has to go in and defuse the bomb. And it's super intense, and it's great. There's some great car chases. There's a big finale in this, like, kind of like laundry factory with lots of fights, lots of gunplay. So as an action movie, it's a lot of fun, but it's also got just, just this funny comic tone. And I fucking love it. I think this is a super hoot. And uh, I was one of those ones where I'm like, oh man, I have really good memories of this, but is this going to hold up? But thankfully, Shout Factory has allowed me to, to find out and put this out on the DVD with the Nickel Ride. And it's a nice widescreen transfer. It looks great. And this is just as fun as I remembered it. So this is a high recommend for me, even though a lot of people wouldn't just wouldn't agree. But if you can kind of just get behind that quirky tone and just how cool Richard Harris is in this, it's um, a real fun, fun flick to check out. Um, Richard Harris was so cool in this movie that, like, Anne Turkle fall, fell for him. And she was, like, 15 years younger. And they ended up getting married for eight years. Huh. Like, he was... I just he's so cool in this and it's kind of like got a Bond vibe going but like Roger Moore era Bond and yeah it's it's a really it's a really fun movie and I'm 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 dismayed that Frankenheimer kind of turned his back on this flick because I I, I think it's pretty fun so every it's, time, it's every, hard to get but uh, or hard to no one knows about this movie but I'd recommend it big time every time I think of Richard Harris I just think of Orca actually <laughs> <laughs> Because I just, like you said, I just picture him as like an old man fighting yeah. the uh, fighting the elements and stuff. But he was only a couple of years older in Orca. But he, huh. uh, I don't know, man. Something about this flick, I I, it, it, I gravitated towards it when I was young. But it's, uh, I still thought it was super fun. Well, I'll have to see if if I can get that set for a pretty good price. Maybe I'll check it out because it's they both sound pretty good. Like fifteen twenty bucks on Amazon. I mean, I'm I'm good with seeing someone say, "Hey, there's alligators get flushed down toilets," and then seeing alligators in the sewer. I'm good with scenes like that. That that and the like Chuck Connors stuff and the fucking the, the that uh, school bomb scare thing. There's also a school uh, car chase with a school bus. 
So yeah, there's, it's got a lot of good fun stuff going on. I I always like it when Chuck Connors shows up. I always I always liked Chuck Connors because he was yeah. always never he never took himself seriously. No, no, definitely not in this one. So yeah, yeah, definitely check it out. Ninety nine and forty four hundred percent dead. Awkward title, but pretty fun. So you're talking about that last movie and you're talking about something you liked as a kid and not being disappointed. Well, the next movie is a movie that I know you liked as a kid that I've never seen up until this point that I decided to finally check out. And it's a movie that I did not like. And that's a movie called the mosquito coast from 1986. Really? Yeah. Wow. Let me explain to you why I didn't like it. I was an angsty teenager. Don't forget that. That's true, I guess. But okay, so basically what The Mosquito Coast is, it's a it was Harrison Ford's follow-up to Witness the year prior, which was also directed by Peter Weir, who made this. Now, Peter Weir's a guy who I really like as a director. He made a movie called Gallipoli with Mel Gibson in the early yeah. 80s. Uh, he also went on to make Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams. He made The Truman Show with Jim Carrey, which is one of the few... Jim Carrey movies I actually don't mind. Um, And he did this. And then also, the screenplay of this, this is adapted from a Thoreau book. The screenplay is by Paul Schrader, who Mm -hmm. wrote Taxi Driver, among other things. So I'm like, okay, so far, so good. So basically what Mosquito Coast is, Harrison Ford in this plays an inventor who is super anti-establishment. So he's just like, he's super unhappy with society in general. You know, he basically goes around the small town he lives in because he works on a farm and trying to invent something for, to like help with the crops. He just goes around town saying, look at America, look at the state of America, look at all these people shoving fast food in their faces. And this is terrible. And I hate the way society is and everything, you know, this is, ridiculous and people should learn to be self-sufficient and blah 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 so he's he just he just hates living in society basically so helen mirren's here playing his wife i love helen mirren great actress you know this is young helen mirren too so you know she looks good even now in her older age but back then can't complain right river phoenix is here is the oldest of their four kids and he's kind of like the he's kind of like the comparison to Ford's character where he's going along with his dad but he really you don't really feel like he really believes it particularly like he's just like I don't understand why you hate things so much basically so from here he just you know basically Ford's character he talks in riddles through the whole beginning of this movie like everything he says is like has this philosophy behind it where it's just like a load of bullshit you're like okay dude like you're just saying all these things and I'm (laughs) just like you're just talking in riddles right but then he just decides he makes a decision he's like that's it I'm done he makes a decision much like the family does in the wilderness family I was just thinking the same thing where he's like where he's like I'm done. I'm going to leave it all behind. I'm just going to fucking leave America because I can't stand America. So he's like, okay, I'm going to leave and I'm going to go move to this title locale, the Mosquito Coast. That's what it's called. It's like the Mes- Mosquito or something. It's like, I'm going there and I'm going to live in the jungles with my family. And I'm like, okay, cool. If that's what you want to do, cool. But the thing is, he's a fucking unlikable asshole. Like, you really 
really, I could not stand him. Yeah. He's just going around self-righteous, just being a prick to everybody. He goes to the hardware store, and the clerk, played by Jason Alexander from Seinfeld oh, wow. and The Burning, he basically treats him like shit. He's like, give me this. Clerk gives him what he wants. He's like, this is Japanese. I don't want this. At least give me something made in America. He's like, do your job. Aren't you good at your job? He's basically fucking asshole to everybody. Yeah, yeah. And I'm just like, I don't like this guy. And then he's also like, I'm making a decision for my family. You, you don't want to go to the jungle? Too fucking bad you're coming to the jungle, basically, right? So he buys this village called Geronimo out in the Mosquito Coast. And he decides... We're going to disconnect from civilization. We're just going to go out here and, you know, let's do it. And I'm like, okay, sure. Every one of us has one thought to themselves. Well, maybe not you because you're a city boy. But, like, (laughs) a lot of us are like, well, it's kind of appealing thinking we can disconnect from civilization once in a while. Like, that's kind of why I go camping every year is, like, I can get away from the hustle bustle for a couple weeks or whatever every year right and that's an appealing idea but the thought of being stuck with Harrison Ford's character and his fucking attitude is not appealing whatsoever to me right so I'm like okay so he's going over there with his family he's building his village with some of the locals he's doing all that you know great scenery going on River Phoenix pretty good in his limited role Helen Mirren completely fucking wasted i'm like great actress being completely wasted she had a more heady she had a better role in caligula for fuck's sake okay like (laughs) she's being totally wasted in this movie so i'm like okay so so far so so far i'm like "Eh." at the beginning i'm like i'm kind of liking this disconnection from reality thing but i'm not liking ford's character whatsoever i'm not liking the fact that he's like basically forcing the locals to do his biddings i don't like the fact that he's like i'm gonna make this big fucking monstrosity thing that produces ice because they've never seen ice in the jungle and then i'm gonna take this ice to this other tribe and i'm gonna fucking force them to love me because i brought them ice that's the kind of shit his character does right god complex yeah yeah like he's got a god complex so i'm like okay whatever they put this conflict in there with this pastor played by Andre Gregory. And then they also add an additional conflict later on where, you know, these army militants basically show up and, you know, they're like, want to take over and he has to figure a way to get rid of them, which ends very badly, admittedly. And that stuff's okay. Like the stuff with the militants, I'm like, that's pretty good. Like there's some tension there. Um, The way it goes is kind of, you know, shitty, but that scene's pretty good. Like that whole 20 minutes of the movie is pretty good. But the thing is, and I'm actually stunned a big studio actually back to this movie because it's not a mainstream film at mm. all, particularly. So I'm stunned. Warner brothers was like, sure, let's do this. But I think it's because of witness that they decided to do this, to be honest. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I I'm sitting there and I'm like, my issues are this. The stuff with the militant families are good. The stuff with the scenery and the the whole appealing to me of getting away from things, you know, that's all good stuff. But I cannot fucking stand Harrison Ford's character in this entire movie. I 
hated him. Like, yeah. hated him. And you shouldn't hate your main protagonist of your movie. And I mean, and I get it. Later in the movie, his family begins to hate him too. And they express those feelings like out loud. Yeah. I don't like dad. I want him to die. I'm like, yeah, I get that. But at the same time, don't make the guy unlikable from the beginning. It's like making Jack Nicholson a fucking nutcase in The Shining from the very beginning. There's no build up to it, right? Like when Harrison Ford's character hates everything from the get go and doesn't get any better. I'm not going to enjoy that. Like make him like an idealist at first, right? Like that idea. I'm an idealist. I don't like society. Let's go out into the jungle and make a better life for me and my family. And then have it corrupt him over time. You know, because he gets that God complex. And he's getting corrupted by that God complex. Have that happen. And then maybe I'll be a little bit more on board with what you're doing. Don't have him be an asshole right from the get-go. Like, that's not going to make me into this, right? Um, And also, my question is this. If you want to be away from society so badly... Why did you feel it necessary to come up with an invention that gave you air conditioning? And why did you come up with – why did you need a flushing toilet? Mm-hmm. Like if you want to be disconnected so much, why do you need those luxuries? These people who lived in this village of Geronimo never had that shit before and they were perfectly happy. Right. Why aren't you following their lead but instead using them to do your bidding? You know, that kind of stuff. So I kind of had issues with that too. And also I had issues with the fact that at one point in this movie, his fucking character basically tells his family, yep, yep, the U.S. has been wiped out. Yep, there's been a nuclear war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, you know, too bad. I guess we have to stay here. I'm just like, no, no, I'm just fucking done with him. So it's like all these decent moments in this movie, and there are some decent moments, like I said, are just completely canceled out by Ford's character completely i hated him and it's also canceled out by the fact that there's no real conflict in this movie for the most part it's basically just ford's character being like you do what i want no exceptions kind of thing but if they would have progressed it the way i said make him fairly likable from the get-go and then have that complex and that attitude take over then i would have probably been more on board with what is delivered here but making him a jerk from the beginning just does do it. And I was totally creeped out by the whole movie, him calling Helen Mirren's character mother over and over oh, again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was totally creeped out by that, to be honest. So didn't work for me, dude. Like I tried. I was like interested because the premise, I'm like the premise, totally great premise. I generally like Harrison Ford as an actor and I do like Peter Weir as a director, but this just didn't work for me at all. So I, I'm not quite sure what your remembrance of this is. Well, okay. First of all, I thought it was a pretty daring role for him because I know exactly what you're talking about. And well, I mean, it I was. Think he yes. was trying to break away from Indiana Jones and Han Solo, for yeah, sure. Yeah. I, secondly, I, I I was, like, young when I saw mm-hmm. this. And in my head, this has always not been about Harrison Ford. This has been about River Phoenix. Yeah, no. So in my brain, that movie is River Phoenix's story and how he's trying to deal with and how he's dealing with this whole situation with this crazy father. That's how I, and that's who I was with when I watched right. this movie, not right. with Ford. So maybe 
I'm I'm not sure. Maybe it was because of my age at the time, because I haven't seen this for a long time. But that might be why, is because that's who I was with, and I was like, oh my god, like. But I was with him. I was with him as he was like falling for. I think they, him and Martha Plimpton, had a thing going on in that movie. Not, right? not really. But though. they were like friends, or they were. Yeah, like when, he, her and him kind of like talked on the boat over to the jungle and then she shows up a little later in the movie yeah when they go to the church that the pastors built in the jungle which is another scene that's very very i have big issues with ford's actions during that moment too but i i mean i get where you're coming from because it is there is narration in the movie from river phoenix's character yeah where he kind of says oh, it's a hard time because of dad or whatever. And I get, I can understand how that might appeal to us at that age. Because I was probably that age at that yeah. time, right? Like, like I he understand. Was, he was he was like a teenager, right? Wasn't he? Yeah. Grown? Yeah. So He would have been about 15 in the movie, probably. Which I would have been. So that's yeah. probably where, where I, I think that's where I was coming from when I watched it. Yeah. yeah. And why I connected with the movie so much. Because if I was watching it now and thinking I was supposed to be, like, with Harrison Ford, yeah, I'd feel the same way. Yeah. But I feel like that's what happened back then as I was with River Phoenix. Well, and I think even the filmmakers, like, I think to a a small extent, uh, Peter Weir and Paul Schrader were trying to do the Phoenix character, like, giving him the narration that we're trying to give you something, you know, that you could kind of follow and grasp on but i just felt it wasn't given enough play Mm. like in the in the long run because there's moments of this movie where phoenix's character is made to do some pretty bad things by his dad Mm -hmm. but it's not like you don't really see the repercussions of those bad things particularly like he'll do some bad things and then later in the movie there'll be a little bit of narration where he's like, yeah, I think my dad's gone crazy or whatever. Like, but there's no real instant repercussions. I think is yeah. what what the thing is. Like, like I want instant repercussions. Like, if you think your dad is such a terrible, doing such terrible things, why isn't there instant repercussions for that? Why wouldn't you have conflict with him? And that's the thing. There's no conflict in this. Like, even between Phoenix and Ford's character. There's not a lot of conflict that goes on. There's one or two scenes in the whole movie in the two-hour running time that there's mild conflict. But some of the stuff his character's made to do, if that was me in that situation, I'd be like, fuck you, dad. Not happening. Right? Like, so I felt like that was a little bit too sketchy for me personally. And I'm an adult watching this movie, too. Like, I'm in my 40s. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like... I, I don't know. I'd like to revisit it just to see because yeah. I know I certainly know Harrison Ford's character is a prick in that movie. No, but, but I but you are right. It is him trying to break that mold. Oh yeah, definitely. Han Solo, Indiana Jones, but I just felt it was a little bit too extreme of a yeah. stretch to break that mold. Like to a serious movie, like Witness. I haven't seen Witness, but as far as I know, that's kind of a a step towards what he's doing Definitely, here too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I feel like it's a more realistic step than just going outright. Cause he's a big movie star. When mosquito coast comes out, people love Harrison Ford. I mean, 
make your character somewhat unlikable, but make but like you don't want to be fucking absolutely unlikable from the get go because people are paying to see a Harrison Ford movie. They're not paying right. to see a River Phoenix movie. You know? Yeah. People are here to see Harrison Ford. So if you go into a Harrison Ford movie and you fucking can't stand him from the get go, you're gonna be upset. True. Like, I wonder if it's based on a true story. It's an interesting story though, like it's based on a novel. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I mean I mean, like I said, there's moments in this that I really was like, okay, I like what they're doing, but then every time Ford's character just did these made these decisions and let his my way or the highway god complex yeah. attitude take over then it pushed me back out of the movie again where i'm yeah. like no no and then having it so that helen mirren's character is basically subservient to him for the most part i'm like no she, she she's a better actress than this she deserves better than this for starters and really would she allow that to go on particularly because like Earlier in the movie, she is kind of independent. Like when they're living back in in America, she does show some streaks of independence. So why would she allow him to do some of the stuff he does? You know, it, it's it's an interesting, like it's an interesting discussion. But I just well, I think you could spin that. <laughs> like when I watched The Wilderness Family, I kind of felt the same way. I kind of well, felt yeah, like the but... dad was just like psychotic. <laughs> And the, the poor woman clearly did not want to be there. <laughs> like, <laughs> but the thing about the Wilderness Family is, it's a lighthearted movie aimed at fa- at kids and stuff. But this maybe, is like, maybe that's maybe this is like the Wilderness Family as it really was. <laughs> <laughs> this is like a dissertation of I fucking hate '80s Reagan America. Let's get the fuck out of here, kind of thing. So yeah, I, I tried, but. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to give you the disc of this. So I really oh, cool. would. I think it'd be really interesting to get your take on it down the road. Yeah, I'd love to revisit it. So, yeah, that's uh, that's the Mosquito Coast. Uh, interesting, but unable, unfortunately, not for me. So unable for me personally to recommend it. But there is some interesting ideas in it, admittedly. Yeah, for sure. Sorry. All right, well, I'll take your Harrison Ford and I'll raise your Harrison Ford. Uh, Okay. (laughs) I watched a uh, Harrison Ford movie, and this is another one that I really liked when I was a kid. Um, Don't know why, but I did. And uh, it's a movie called Force 10 from Navarone from 1978, directed by Guy Hamilton, who did uh, two of my favorite Bond flicks, uh, Goldfinger and Live and Let Die. Um, based on a, 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 I'm going back to the realm of Alistair MacLean again. Of course, Alistair MacLean wrote Guns of Navarone, and as well as the sequel, Force 10 from Navarone. Um, this movie opens as the ending of Guns from Guns of Navarone with um, with the ending of that. And yeah, I mean, this is a movie. It's kind of like fucking Expendables of like the 70s, dude. Like this puts together like Apollo Creed with fucking Han Solo with um, Quint from Jaws and fucking Django and the Jackal from Day of the Jackal. So, like, I don't really see how you can go wrong. Uh, We've also got two people from the latest Bond movie together. Uh, Richard Keel um, is in this, as well as Barbara Bach, who are both in Spy Who Loved Me. And, um, yeah, the the movie is 
basically Mallory and Miller from Guns of Navarro, uh, originally played by Gregory Peck and David Niven, this time around played by Robert Shaw and Edward Fox. And they're being sent to um, this um, area to uh, basically blow up this bridge. And, uh, oh no, they're being sent to this area, sorry, to take out this guy that's um, a traitor, played by Franco Nero. Um, so they're, they're being sent in, but they're being, they're going in with Harrison Ford, playing a guy named Barnsby and his crew, and their mission is to take out this bridge. That's what happened. So it's kind of like these older guys with the younger crew. This is Harrison Ford right after Star Wars. This is his first role after Han Solo. And he's this kind of, again, kind of a gruff uh, military dude who's like, I don't want these fucking old fogies with me. I want to just go and get my mission done. But he's got to take along Robert Shaw and Edward Fox. They go off in their plane, and uh, Apollo, sorry, Apollo Creek, Carl Weathers runs up. And <laughs> Apollo jumps in. Creek. He's like, yeah, because they have to, basically, they have to go undercover, so they have to basically stage an escape to get on the plane so it looks like they escaped from the military base so along for the ride goes Apollo or fuck Carl Weathers they take <laughs> off on the plane um, and then there's like this um, you know this pretty cool action sequence aboard the plane they have to parachute out they land in enemy territory where the Germans are they get captured you know there's there's all kinds of things that happen with, with this group and then they eventually have to get to the scene where they um, where they have to take out this bridge, a la the Guns of Navarone, a la the bridge of the, on the River Kwai. Um, now, this is a movie that, like, you know, I felt like had this kind of pulpy appeal to it, this kind of B-movie appeal to it. Um, and I think that's why I liked it so much. It had, I mean, it was directed by Guy Hamilton, who, like, had some um, experience doing these big action sequences. Um, fucking Franco Nero, I, I before he, I even knew about his spaghetti western past and his uh, Italian cinema past, I always thought he was so cool in this movie. Um, Barbara Bach, um, not a very great actress, but I do remember her very clearly from this movie. Richard Keel was always a presence. He played Jaws in a couple of the Bond movies and big fucking tall guy um and even robert shaw and, and edward fox edward, edward fox's character is kind of funny but kind of cool at the same time robert shaw was just this is kind of top of his game and um i was a huge harrison ford fan when i saw this first i didn't know if it would hold up i know kino lorber put it out so i um picked up the disc recently and man, this was just as fun as I remembered. And I wasn't expecting to. I was because this has got a bit of a bad reputation. I know um, Shaw didn't like it. I know Harrison Ford has definitely come out and said he's embarrassed by it, which pisses me off. Um, but it's just got a great cast. It's got a great. It's a mission movie. I love mission movies. Um, it's got some great miniature effects. Um, it's got some twists and turns. Uh, there's a fucking decapitation by wire where a jeep's driving along and they pull a wire across and the guy gets his head chopped off, which is pretty awesome. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a lot of fun. And, and uh, 
just it's like that Alistair McLean stuff. I know I talked about Breakheart Pass and that not feeling like an Alistair McLean movie. This one does. I like those mission movies where this is group of people trying to get somewhere and do something, right? And that's exactly what this is. And I thought it was awesome. So I'd really recommend picking up the Kino Lorber disc. Um, I know that Indicator just also announced this very, very recently after I had already picked this up from Kino. But the Indicator disc is going to have two different cuts on it, as well as a whole shit ton of extras. And I think this movie is kind of like, it has kind of been like the kind of like, you know, bastard stepchild of Guns of Navarone that no one ever loved, right? But I think people are now seeing it as kind of a different movie and not the Guns of Navarone sequel. Because it, you know, that's like a very difficult comparison, right? Guns of Navarone is such a classic and this is different. It's got a different tone to it. I mean, it's the same thing, but it's just a little, a little more kind of playful. And um, um, I think if you look at it as a completely separate movie, and you're not thinking of Gregory Peck and David Niven and Anthony Quinn and all that, you're gonna get a get a different read from this movie. So I'd almost recommend, especially to our younger viewers, if you've never seen Guns of Navarone and don't even know what that is then check this one out first maybe because i think on its own it's a pretty fun little wharf like from the late 70s and um yeah totally totally held up for me so i don't know if you've ever seen this one but no i haven't i loved harrison forward and i was like yeah this was like a big one for me when i was young because i was so into him right and uh yeah it's super good and now knowing all this other stuff and knowing all these other all these actors were coming off these big movies like when jaws had just come out uh why i love me it just came out star wars had just come out like all of these huge movies of the 70s and these guys were all together literally was like a kind of a super group of action stars of the time so yeah super recommend checking it out so now so now you're like two for two on childhood favorites that people who have involved with them have disowned this episode it's true it's true yeah shaw and and four were both not happy with this but i don't get it like the um i don't know what i don't know i i just and i'm you know i'm not alone like i mean both those movies um people love them right but i guess maybe as an actor if you were like you know, but what do you what do you expect? I mean, you're making a Guns of Navarone sequel, like twenty eight or twenty years later almost. Um, that's been you know with different actors and Guy Hamilton's directing. Like you kind of, if you know Guy Hamilton's directing, you kind of kind of know what you're getting into a little bit. Like, you know, he's a British director, but he certainly had fun with his movies. I've the ones I've seen anyway. So are you going to buy the indicator disc then? Yeah, I might. I might. I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I'll have to figure out what... Like, the Kino disc only has a commentary, and the indicator disc has, like, like, like I said, two cuts, two commentaries, I think, and then a whole bunch of interviews and stuff. Um, there's even a whole, like, there's a half-hour feature on the differences between the two cuts. So... I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think if I if there's an indicator sale, I'll probably snap it up and sell this one. But uh, but still, it was just even with what it was. Like this is the one, the version I remember, and it's like it's a good movie. Well, if you buy the indicator, you can slide the keto by away. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. <laughs> then I can see it. All right. So my final film of the evening is a movie that, you know, I 
had been getting super super big hype lately on like various horror podcasts I've listened to and it's just one of those movies that like seem to be like the big indie darling of the last couple of years and it's on Shutter so I decided to check it out and it's a movie called The Headhunter from 2018 um directed by Jordan Downey who I last saw his work making a movie called Thanks Killing oh, yeah. which was which was basically a turkey puppet running around murdering people while cracking one-liners with the most memorable scene of when he sneaks in to a bedroom and takes over kills the boyfriend and takes over for the boyfriend in the sex scene and when the girl looks back and sees that she's being uh basically raped by a turkey he says you just got stuffed that's what i remember from thanks killing now this is completely and utterly different from thanks killing so basically what this is it's a super low budget i think it was made for like thirty thousand dollars um and opens with uh, a scene with this viking warrior type it's he's basically a medieval warrior played by christopher raya fighting this unknown creature in order to protect his daughter who's in a tent from this monster and we never see the monster but we hear it and you know he goes off and fights it and then the credits kick in with this really kick-ass score by the by the composer nick sewell as it kind of goes through his cabin showing all the skulls and weapons that are in his cabin so for a super low budget movie this just oozed production value right from the get-go because uh, director Downey, apparently his, I think it's his aunt or something, has this ramshackle cabin out in the wilderness of like Romania or or Poland or somewhere like that that he was able to use for the shooting of this film. So from there, it kind of goes into this story of it's it's in the future. Uh, Raya's the Viking warrior guy's daughter has been killed by this mythical creature and the movie is just him basically trying to hunt down all the creatures and beasts in the area to get revenge on for his daughter he doesn't know what the exact creature is that killed his daughter but he's just gonna fucking murder them all until he figures it out basically so like So it's just him. He has no real dialogue in this movie. And so the actor has no real dialogue. He's relied upon to keep his seemingly mundane actions interesting. So there's scenes of him just like, you know, preparing his weapons, making stakes and putting them on his wall because that's where he puts the monster's heads when he's killed them. You know, making his this elixir from their bones and that which heals his wounds and stuff just and then like, you know, stuff like that. It's it's relied on the actor to keep it interesting because there's a lot of this, like this is a pretty, it's only 71 minutes long, but it's pretty slower paced and like very methodical in its delivery. So, you know, it's a suitably dirty, gritty kind of film directed with a lot more style than I was expecting from Downey judging from Thanksgiving. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, whatever. And then, you know, I'm watching this and I'm super into this. Like I'm like, well, like I'm really digging on this movie because it's a low budget. It's delivering this kind of very ambitious story 
that is like it's a slight story, but it's won over by the ambience of the story, the score, the setting and the pure ambition of the entire thing. Like this guy was basically like, I've got a four person crew, a three person crew. I've got a location over in Europe. I've got $30,000. Let's go make this movie. That's the kind of thing that he did with this. Right. And so I'm like totally won over by this entire thing. Um, and then just like, you know, just having these scenes where the character, the lead character, he hears this kind of like this, it's kind of like this foghorn noise which indicates to him there's a creature by i have to rush out and kill it so it's him hearing this it's him hearing the noise the the warning sound running out to kill the monster a lot of times dragging himself back to his cabin completely injured and trying to recover from his injuries before it's rinse repeat i go fight creatures again kind of thing so like i can see this i can see this not being for all like because it's like very quiet in its nature and most of the confrontations with the monsters in this movie are off screen due to budgetary restraints so i can i can see this kind of not appealing to every horror fan particularly but i'm like totally in like i'm digging the shit out of this movie right and then there's a scene later on you know like i'm i'm digging the ambition I'm feeling this is more of an experience over a big narrative because it really is like the narrative is pretty tight and but the experience of this movie I'm like totally in and um, there's a scene in this movie there's this he, he brings the he brings the heads back in a sack and he throws them on the ground before he spikes them on the wall. And one of the heads gets doused with this like healing potion he's made and it's kind of resurrected and goes on this rampage, which leads to it like rebuilding itself and also has this scene where for him to hunt down the head, he has to take this trip down this narrow cave-like passage, which is super tense. And that whole sequence just feels like a complete evil dead moment. And it just kicks so much fucking ass, dude. Like that scene, that five minutes, I'm like, this scene is fucking rad. So I'm just like totally in on this movie. This movie was a super, super surprise because usually when something gets hyped up on po- other podcasts and in other genre areas I'm always kind of indifferent to it you know yeah. like I like I was with like deathgasm and stuff like that or where like I was with like to a lesser degree it follows like I liked it follows but I wasn't as into it as all these other sources were trying to get me to be right right this one super rad like super highly recommended because what the guy what jordan downey did with that thirty thousand dollar budget was deliver this efficient sleek super engrossing movie that should have been as engrossing as it was considering that it's a slower paced very specific like plot yeah and definitely an extreme step up as a director for him going from thanks killing to this is such a big step for him i'm super excited to see what this guy does next because this movie highly recommended for sure where did you see it it's on shutter nice because it's a shutter original or a shutter exclusive highly recommend the headhunter this probably would have made my best of 2018 top five if i would have seen it 
but yeah. yeah totally totally lives up to any hype you've heard wow. completely biggest nice. surprise of my of since last episode of what i watched and you know this is one of those movies where in like these low budget productions that are really like prevalent in the genre right now a lot of them don't quite succeed in what they're trying to do this completely does so nice. super super highly recommend the headhunter Wow, I've never even heard of it, so that's awesome. Yeah, so it's completely and utterly recommended. So if you have Shudder, you've got 70, 70 minutes to, that you want to kill, watch this, you won't regret it. Josh's VHS Adventures! Oh boy. Oh boy. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. I actually watched this, and I'm like, really? Do I really even talk about this one? But, well, okay, I will. <laughs> Um, That's not a good sign. Hong Kong Category 3 <laughs> produced oh, okay. a lot of wonderful cinema, <laughs> uh, Yeah, <laughs> depending like, on how you like, look at it. You know, the Ebola syndrome, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Ebola syndrome, the untold story, and yeah. there was kind of a trifecta in my brain, those two, and this one, okay. Dr. Dr. Lamb from 1992. Hmm. Um directed by Danny Lee. We've talked about Danny Lee before. He was in The Killer. He was in Oily Maniac. And he was in Mighty Peking Man. And like 5,000 other things. This was co-directed by Danny Lee and a gentleman named Billy Tang. Billy Tang was a lot more prevalent in the Category 3 stuff with movies like Run to Kill, Red to Kill. Movies like that. So... Okay. <laughs> this one also stars Simon Yam, who I've talked yeah. about before as well. Probably my favorite Hong Kong actor. And this is definitely a movie where you're like, man, those people, those, like, over in Hong Kong at the time, you could kind of get away with anything. Like, if you tried to fucking pull this off here, you'd be blacklisted so fast you wouldn't even know what hit you. But over there, yep, Simon Yam can play a real life serial killer. Uh, named uh, Lam Kar Wan. Um, so that's who it was based on. This is a real killer that was also called the Jars Murderer and also called the Rainy Night Butcher. Um, this has a real taxi driver vibe to it in some scenes where this guy, basically this guy's a taxi driver who goes around killing prostitutes and young women. He, he only killed four people, but... Um, so we, we open with him as a child and we're basically, he's, you know, watches his parents have sex and he's like trying to pull his, the pants off of his sister and you're like, oh Christ, here we go. <laughs> um, and then we, you know, it, the, the movie opens basically with him getting caught and then he's pulled into the police station. Danny Lee's playing the um, police, the inspector. Um, and then they just start beating, basically beating a confession out of him. So I think it's kind of supposed to be a bit of a commentary on the police at the time. Um, and then the, the rest of the movie is him confessing to the murders and then it going back in flashbacks and showing them in graphic detail. And this shit is fucked up. Like, I, and I'm kind of like, part of me is like, why am I, like, what's the point of all this? Like, I guess it's a serial killer thing, but it just because of the way it was done, like there was no, you knew who it was. You knew he was caught. So there's no like tense 
stuff with that. Like, you already know that's happening. So it's basically, they're just showing you the movie. They're just showing you the acts in a flashback. Like, that's what this movie is. And it's just like, one, then it goes to the next set piece. And it goes to the next set piece. And they're fucked up, man. Like, there's, like... The first one is, like, there is, you know, he kills her and then brings her back to his apartment, puts plastic on the floor. Then he goes to the store and buys a power saw. And you're just like, oh, fuck, here we go. And then, yeah, then it's, like, graphic scenes of him, like, sawing up the corpse. And you're just like, how? It's happening. Like, because, like, Simon Yam was, like, a big actor. Danny Lee was a big actor. But I will say, the performance Yam gives in this is so crazy like it's like crazier than anything you've ever seen a serial killer play in american cinema like he is so primal and like he's like howling and like twitching and it's it's fucked and it's like kind of like it's pretty incredible just how this guy can pull this off this way he's acting though like it's, it's very it's really impressive to me like even though the subject matter is really fucked up like just that this guy who i've who i know is like you know the cool gangster or the the, the kind of like the the gay villain from full contact or the fucking cool guy in the white tuxedo and bullet in the head to this like this actor like this guy is all over the place and he is always gives us all and it's always a rad so for that reason i will give him a real big shout out because his performance in this is very very unsettling but the subject matter of this is fucked like he you know we've we've got the power scene we've got a scene and i never understand the comedy in these movies and i don't understand the chinese comedy but there's a scene where like he's called the jar killer or whatever, what is it? The jar, jars murderer. That's because when this, the police go into his apartment, they find all these jars filled with body parts, and one of them has a bre- breast in it. And there's a scene, a slapstick scene, of where the breast gets falls out of the jar, oh, and then it gets thrown, and then someone catches it and throws it to someone else. Oh, jeez. And it's like this game. It's like the fucking penis scene in Street Trash. It's super weird and super out of place. But weird. And then it's there's hot also, potato. And then it then it gets into necrophilia and all kinds of shit. So but it is pretty crazy how they made these movies back then and it was fine. Like I know Simon Yam was in some of Billy Tang's other movies and Danny Lee is also like even Oily Maniac from back in the seventies was fucked up. So they do make some weird stuff, but then they can also turn around and make something like the killer. So it's a pretty fascinating film culture over there. I find that they can get do stuff like this, and then and then turn around and do like a really cool stylish action movie, and then turn around and make a really a, an acclaimed drama at the same time, right? Like, um, just feels like a lot more free. But um, but at the same time, I can totally do without this stuff. Like, I don't need this shit in my life. And uh, this is like younger Josh picking these movies up. This Ebola syndrome and untold story. Yeah. Um, but older Josh does not like it anymore <laughs> at all. Um, but yeah, it's, um, if you're interested in that or uh, you want to see a really crazy serial killer performance or really cool, you know, it's got great cinematography. It's got a very like disturbing sounding score. Like it's really well made, but uh 
this is really over the top and really disturbing shit. So uh, I wouldn't recommend it anymore, but um, it's pretty crazy the stuff's out there though. Well, that's, that's like yeah. Lamb. That's like that's like you and me. We were on the the VHS tape trading days. Mm-hmm. Is when we picked up all our category three stuff. Like I had Ebola syndrome and I had yeah. Untold Story and Entrails uh, uh, of the Virgin and all that stuff. Yeah. And that stuff I would not watch nowadays. Cause, guinea pig. Guinea pig. Yeah. Like, like I wouldn't watch that stuff now. No. Because it doesn't have any appeal to me. So, but you're right. How the hell did they make these things? Like, yeah. and get away with it. So. Oh. crazy crazy talk josh's vhs adventures all right so even without a topic we cleared three hours people (laughs) you're welcome yeah (laughs) and it was a it's a pretty obscure more obscure batch this time i think (laughs) so so get get ready to get ready to see see if tubi's got some of these i guess i don't know (laughs) some new discoveries so anyway, um, let's do my final spiel and we can call it a night. Uh, as we've heard us mention a couple times, there are we have been having some interactions on our Facebook discussion group. So let's continue that. So just search for GBW Podcast and, on Facebook and join the conversations. Uh, right now we've got a 30-day movie challenge going on on there, and that's pretty yeah. fun. So let's have some more people do that. And... Uh, you know, Twitter and Instagram, search for GBW Podcast. Rating and review wherever you listen to sh- podcasts. That would be Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, whatever. And most importantly, if you like the show, tell a friend who will tell a friend. And so on. And so on. As I like to say at the end of the show. Anything else to add? Nope. Nope. That's all. So until next time, everybody. Good night. Good night.